Hello again, everybody, and welcome into another edition of Political Beats, a presentation of National Review. Find us on Twitter at political underscore beats. Find us on Facebook as well. We invite you to subscribe to our feed for those new episodes, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher. Tune in. Go right to nationalreview.com. Find episodes there as well. Click on the podcast tab. Listen, enjoy, share, and of course, leave reviews so others can find the show. Also, check out our Patreon page at patreon.com slash politicalbeats. Help the show stay ad-free as we are now. Support our efforts here on the program. We've got entry-level support for, well, you know, just saying you like us and uh, some voting privileges from time to time. Mid-level for early access to new shows and at a higher audio quality. And then our upper-level best of friends, exclusive content once a month, remastered episodes, Spotify playlists from our end-of-show choices and more. All that at patreon.com slash politicalbeats. I'm Scott Bertram. Find me on Twitter at Scott Bertram. My tag team partner standing by as always, Jeff Blair. Jeff, how are you? Disposition, even, hair, brown, eyes, blue, weight, <laughs> a gentleman never tells. <laughs> I need a podcast to download in here, but not this talky one. A new design, new design. We should all do that show, do this show in, uh, via vocoder. Exactly. But we won't. We won't. At Esoteric CD on Twitter for Jeff. Our guest for this fine program is back for a third helping of Neil Young. He is editor-in-chief at National Journal. Find that at nationaljournal.com. On Twitter at DC DeFore. Jeff DeFore is back for part three. Jeff, thanks for joining us and returning. Of course, I can't top that, but maybe as a counterpoint, I should have just plugged my amp in and turned it all the way up and <laughs> crunched an E minor chord. And then strung a bunch of those together. And then fun. swung your hair around as you danced in flannel. <laughs> sure. Exactly. Uh, we have moved through part one, which got us through 1979. We have moved, I'm sorry, that's not even true. We got through part one. for part That's one. Right. Part two is through 79. Part two is through 79. So we enter the 80s, ready and raring to go, and now have to bring you, the listener, through uh, the last 41 years or so of Neil Young's career, which encompasses 38 albums, give or take, one or two here or there. Let's say at the beginning, we are operating under, you know, uh, time constraints of, you know, Earth. And so we we likely won't say everything you might want us to say about your favorite track from Including album about 36. the album called Earth. <laughs> yes, good point. <laughs> <laughs> the live album Earth we will not be discussing. So we will we will do our, our, our best to, to move with some speed through these works, uh, especially as we get toward the tail end, uh, and, and try to at least mention uh, a vast majority of Neil Young's efforts between 1980 and uh, and 2021, although that is a Herculean effort even just to remember all those entries. Uh, but we start, Jeff, you can set us up uh, after we the last thing we did at, at part two, Rust Never Sleeps and Live Rust as Neil Young entered the 1980s. And I think there will be a lot of surprises on this episode of the show because uh, this is an era that you know is very hit and miss. Obviously, he had his major critical revival and the and commercial revival as well in the late '80s, early '90s. But uh, a lot of people dismiss uh, what he did during the '80s the same way people write off a lot of Bob Dylan stuff during the 1980s as being like, "Well, this is the lost era when you know he just didn't have it or he was you know doing weird stuff." And I, I 
certainly am not going to deny that Neil was uh, getting really weird in the 1980s. But I think there's a lot more value here than, than, than people generally acknowledge. I certainly prefer it to Dylan's 80s, for that matter. Um, I, where, where do we start? We start with the last two records of his reprise contract. He was with Reprise Records, um, and uh, he comes out with Rust Never Sleeps, which is generally hailed as a masterpiece. It's an A-plus album, an epical, you know, you know, sort of career-summarizing release. Live Rust is his first ever live album, gets equally rapturous reviews, and it's great. You know, obviously, as Jeff mentioned, it was his first Neil Young live album, and it, it, it's a classic in its own right. So what does he do for a follow-up? Well, the first thing he releases in the 1980s is a very curious album called Hawks and Doves. <laughs> this belongs to the second to the the second episode that era of neil that we covered back then because it's the last of those string of sort of what you call hodgepodge albums that he would record during that era and it's actually the perfect mirror image of american stars and bars which is you know if you remember american stars and bars the first half of that was just like a slab of country rock that he recorded in one concentrated session and then side two is a bunch of interesting outtakes uh that you know had dated back as far as 1974, uh, all put onto the second side. And uh, you, you get a very diffuse-sounding album out of that. You do that here. And in this case, it's the first half. first half of Hawks and Doves is uh, almost entirely acoustic material. Uh, and then the second half is this very light country rock. I have to tell you, I prefer this record to American Stars and Bars. And a Disagree. lot of people wonder... A lot of people wondered, well, why did he release such a slight-sounding album, you know, as a big follow-up to Rust Never Sleeps? I can't imagine the anticipation for a Neil Young album had been higher uh, in many years than there was coming out of Rust Never Sleeps. And then he puts out Hawks and Doves. And there are reasons for that that we'll actually end up discussing when we go talk about his next few records. Uh, but I think for this record, uh, I, I really, really like that first acoustic section. I, I, there's a song that opens this record that is, again, it's an old one. It dates back to the archives, part volume two. So I think it was recorded in 75 or 74. It's called The Old Homestead, which is very clearly, although it's a very mysterious and indirect song, it's pretty much an allegory for his relationship with Crosby, Stills, and Nash. And there's that one line in it where, uh, you know, Neil sings, you know, like, why do you ride that crazy horse? It was obviously, you know, you know, CSN asking, well, why are you playing with these chumps uh, when you could be playing with a real band, a real rocking band, you know, like us, like CSN, 
talented studio musicians and great harmonists. Um, but Neil just likes what he likes, and, and it comes out in that song, which isn't a Crazy Horse song. It's just Neil alone with a, a you know, I think there's a drummer on it. It isn't, um, uh, you know, Ralph Molina, but it's a really, really interesting song. And before I continue further, I wanted to know what you guys think about this very weird way to begin episode three of our show. Why do you ride that crazy horse? Inquires a shadow with little remorse. Just then a priest comes down the stairs with a sack of dreams and old nightmares. I disagree. I, I, I agree that you can sort of draw this parallel between this and, and Stars and Bars, uh, but I, I think Stars and Bars is a superior uh, record, although we know that that uh, is essentially the way we stand based on part two. Um, Hawks and Doves, so I, my notes I wrote down, this is, to me, this is like almost exactly replacement level Neil Young. I think Stars and Bars is 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 better, but this is somewhere like right in the middle. If you throw everything he's ever released in some sort of long, long listicle, this would end up like really somewhere in the middle. And you have these disparate parts of the the seventies career, as Jeff mentioned. Side one is from you know the middle seventies. Side two is recorded right around seventy nine, eighty. But you have the stuff from Hitchhiker. You have something from Homegrown. You've got Lost in Space, which I think is from 75. And then on side two, you sort of have him playing some of the straightest uh, country western sort of music to date. But again, I prefer uh, those songs on Stars and Bars and that same sort of motif than, than what we have here on, on, on Hawks and Doves. Uh, Captain Kennedy actually has a song I like. I liked it. Uh, we, I don't know. It was on did, Hitchhiker, right? right. I, I don't know if we talked too much about it in the last episode, but I, I like that. I like that sort of percussive use of the guitar and a real strong uh, string plucks in Captain Kennedy. Staying Power is a, is a decent song, and I'm listening to it for probably the first time, and it almost, to me, sounded like a false ending as it headed into Coastline. Those, those songs 
sound very similar. And then I listen to Union Man, and the intro to Union Man is really close the to the same. intro to Coming Apart at Every Nail. Okay, that's the thing. Okay, that, w- that was the point I was going to make. The- these songs all sound identical. They yeah. have the exact same drum beat on all of them, and they even sort of flow into one. It's almost like it's like a twenty-minute medley. Yeah, that's, <laughs> yeah. That's, that is. I wrote the same thing in my notes. Yeah, Jeff. Uh, yeah, that n- number one. They all feel like demos that shouldn't have been released. Number two, they all read like exactly the same song. Number three. If somebody locked the three of us in a room and said we couldn't come out until we wrote a country song, <laughs> this is kind of what we would come up with. Um, uh, it is all rather generic in terms of it's, you know, you got the fiddle, you've got the little, you know, the almost like a Tennessee three drum beat. Mm-hmm. Um, but on the other hand, I do like Union Man so much. It's such a funny song. <laughs> you know, you know, staged meeting in the middle. <laughs> yes, exactly. Like, you know, all in favor say aye, and then all in favor say nay, and it's just like, you know, silence. And of course, what's the union that Neil's talking about? Well, it's the American Federation of Musicians, of course, because that's what Neil is. He's a musician. That's and there's a, a literally a collar group. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, real blue collars. Right, exactly. There's like, you know, the line is like, live music is the best, which is so funny and dumb in its own way but yes it's it is a curiously slight album might ask yourself well why again as i mentioned right at the beginning why is this the choice that he made creatively and of course something i mentioned uh at the end of last show is the real explanation for it because what had happened in his personal life was the birth of his second son ben uh and ben was born with severe cerebral palsy and you know he was a quadriplegic you know he was non-communicative uh and neil wasn't you know, going to accept that. And, and he threw all of his real energy and his real, like, you know, emotional, you know, strength into raising his son and also trying to come up with alternate, you know, methods, exploring any conceivable alternate methods that could be found to communicate uh, with men, you know, through that, you know, through this problem of cerebral palsy. Uh, and that informs, 
his next two albums. And, it, you know, it's it's fascinating to hear the next album, which is Reactor. This is the last one of his reprise era uh, CDs or records. They were never actually not available on CD for the longest time. Um, and uh, this is one that you'd think, hey, well, this is what we were waiting for. It's Neil. It's back together with Crazy Horse, making just an album. You know, they're in a room recording in one set of sessions. It's not a hodgepodge. It's just them. They're doing new stuff. What could possibly go wrong? Well, what could possibly go wrong is the fact that this sounds is by far the most unfocused, rough, and weirdly disengaged Crazy Horse album of Neil's entire career. You know, the end of our first show, Jeff, you joked about T-Bone, the song. (laughs) Yeah. yeah, Here's a nine and a half minute long song. It has one musical groove, and the lyric is, got mashed potatoes, ain't got no T-Bone. And that's the entire song. minutes of that my friends it's you you know you think hey neil young long grooves maybe he makes it worthwhile no it's as boring as watching paint peel and it it almost feels like it's 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 almost a demonstrative statement of repetition and he said later he said like listen you know this is the mindset that i was in like trying to communicate with my son i was in that sort of repetitive mode where i kept grinding and grinding and grinding and grinding and grinding and so what you get with the music on reactor is something that sounds very much like that there are some good songs on this record, actually. And there are actually a surprising number of songs that he would go back to reclaim later, whether it was with the International Harvesters or with Crazy Horse, like, you know, when they were you know, touring Ragged Glory and such. So there was actual potential here. But the actual production of the album is so brutishly simplistic and tossed off that it's a really tough pill to swallow, in my opinion. It's not my least favorite uh, from the 80s era, uh, but I, I think it's pretty clearly a dud. And 
as Jeff mentioned, the amount of uh, attention to detail here, or really, I mean, again, crazy to say about a crazy horse album, no pun intended, but the the lack of energy on a lot of these tracks. Um, it, it's toothless uh, in a lot of areas, very structured and smooth. The tempos are stiff. Um, I had mentioned to you guys via email, I don't know how many... I know about this song because it's one of those strange songs that get pack, get packed uh, got picked up by classic rock radio, uh, "Train Train" by Blackfoot, which is um, one of the former Skinner guys band, and the, the that that the riff from "Train Train" by Blackfoot it, it's exactly the same as that riff Southern Pacific on this album, with again the same lyrical motif as well. And Blackfoot came first by a couple of years. Uh, I don't know if it's a straight uh, uh, steel or uh, whatever, but but it's, it's it sounds it's it's the same it's the same riff. Uh, that makes that makes total sense to me because side two of this record is basically Crazy Horse as an outlaw country band. <laughs> Yeah, that's certainly what Black's, Blackfoot's sound was. I, I don't mind uh, the first track, uh, Opera Star. Uh, their Surfer Joe is at least somewhat interesting. That There's a guitar workout that sort of redeems part of, of the track. But there's so much on this record that is not difficult to listen to, but uninspiring to listen to, and, and especially odd when you consider the personnel involved. I mean... The album is entirely worthless. I think one of the problems with it is that also Neil Young's voice, his his singing sounds so strange and detached. It's, it's, I guess it's something about the production or the microphone he's using, but he sounds almost like he's singing from like another floor in the building. He doesn't sound integrated with the group. Um, and that's why I, I think one of the reasons why these songs actually ended up sounding a lot better when he would reorganize and rearrange them for live performance on later tours. There's one song on this record, though, that I think is comes close to being an authentic Neil Young classic, and that's the concluder. That's Shots. Uh, this is a song he actually played on the Russ Never Sleeps tour as an acoustic song of all things. It was, you know, during the boarding house gigs, you know, where he played like, you know, you know, out of the blue and, you know, Thrasher and stuff like that. He also played an acoustic version of Shots and then he turns into this. And right from the opening seconds of that, you know, where his guitar is firing like a machine gun. Um, shots ringing out along the borders can be heard, striking out like venom in the sky, cutting through the air faster than a bird in the night. That's a great lyric. It's also telling to me that that's an older song mm. that comes from, you know, at least three years prior to that. Mm. 
Uh, that's the one track on this album that I continually will come back to. But everything else, just again, you would have, without knowing anything, and of course people didn't know anything about this at the time, Neil, of course, being a very private person in general, wasn't out there giving interviews talking about his life, and uh, you could have just detected it from knowing nothing else that something was seriously amiss with him. Like he was, he was, uh, he was clearly not, uh, you know, into in the same way, you know, making these big grand musical statements the way he had been during the seventies. So that ends his nineteen seventy, you know, run with reprise. Uh, he's his contract is up. He's got a new record deal. Well, what could be a better idea you guys than to sign with a label whose head is known for his artist friendly policies who's known for like taking weirdos and people who don't like necessarily fit in and giving them a safe haven and a place to make music without being judged without being held back and so what does neil do he signs with Geffen Records. He even knew Geffen. Geffen uh, had been, um, you know, a partner of his manager way, way back in the early '70s days before, you know, you know going off on his own. Name checked and, in the Roxy, the Roxy Live album too. He exactly. Was there. You know, and you know, Joni Mitchell knew Geffen. That's what Free Man in Paris is about. So it seemed like it would be a, a match made in heaven, would it not be? Well, as we will find out very soon, the answer is hilariously and famously no. What's the first thing that Neil Young does when he signs with Geffen? He submits his new album to them, and that album is something called Johnny's Island. And apparently, we're going to get it released at some point in the near future. Neil has talked about it, um, as you know. And there are some of the tracks are on Trans, the 1982 album Trans, uh, but like more than half of it is still in the vault somewhere. And uh, Geffen rejected it. He said, "No, this isn't this isn't right. You know, you can do better. I, you know, why don't you why don't you come back at us with something else?" And so, of course, what was Neil's response to that? He was like, "Well, if you didn't like that, see what you think of this." And then he put on a bunch of synth pop numbers, <laughs> uh, stuff that he'd been working on actually prior to the end of his Reprise Records contract. This is earlier material. This is stuff that he was doing as part of his therapy with Ben, his son. This electronica. He he'd become obsessed with the idea that you know, computer technology could help him communicate with his son in a way that you know normal speech therapy or language therapy wasn't going to accomplish. And so you get the album Trans, which is, I guess, I'd say almost universally the most maligned album of Neil's career. There are a couple other contenders for that role, uh, but this album was universally greeted with, uh, if not outright derision, then just big shruggies. Like, what the hell is going on? Because you have Neil Young singing with a vocorder, which is one of those instruments that'll pitch shift your voice and make it sound like it's like a weird computer angel, or like shifting it down so he sounds like he's like, I need a unit to sample and hold. That's half, more than half of the songs on this album. It's weird electronic synth pop from the guy who was known for playing acoustic guitars and harmonicas. And uh, needless to say, it was not popular. But I happen to think it's one of the most underrated records of his entire career. And I, I know that you will both completely agree with me.
I would have had a little more respect for it if he just kind of went all in on the Kraftwerk sound it, rather than mix it up with some of this material he recorded in Hawaii. Um, now, partly because the Hawaii material isn't that good either. Um, but he actually, Neil himself almost admits this. There's, as I said, I was rereading the shaky biography and there's a, a quote he gave that I, that I bookmarked. He says, quote, I tried to hide it a bit by putting the things from Hawaii in there. I could have put out the trans EP with only the vocoder shit, and that would have been a cooler thing, unquote. Um, I, I think he was right. If that just stood alone as an artistic statement, there are some good melodies, good songs in there. Um, Computer Age is a, is a, has a, a kernel of a fine song in there. And I will, I don't know if you want me to talk about it now or when we talk about Unplugged, I think Transformer Man is one of his great love songs. It happens to be just a love song to his son rather than his wife or anyone else. Um, and, and as you said, given what he was going through, I get why he recorded it like this. I understand his motivations, but it still just doesn't quite work for me. Um, when, he, when, I, when you finally hear it stripped down to the acoustic guitars and, and the voices and unplugged, you see how stunningly beautiful it is. Um, I, the uh, other thing I kind of like is like an Inca. And I like it in spite of myself, almost. Uh, for, for starters, it sounds like a Doobie Brothers song. Um, and, and secondly, it goes back to the, to the well of uh, you know, his obsession with ancient American civilizations, for whatever reason. It also has like the same like, meter and scansion as Pocahontas, like yes. down to the wire. I mean, yes. So apart from those three things, it's fantastic. <laughs> uh, it's actually not a bad listen in spite of all that. Well, I wish I was an are the germs of, of, of some great things here you just have to kind of chip away or be patient because as we've talked about a lot you you may always get a definitive version 5 10 15 20 years later after he writes something scott i i, I really like this album and it's not mm -hmm. likely to end up in my top two albums from this era 
and I don't know where it would end up at a ranking of you know overall uh, albums, but um, I, I don't want to downplay the weirdness of it, um, especially contemporaneously uh, when you're coming off. I mean, this is December of '82, I think, is the the release of Trans, and that means that you know, Rust Never Sleeps is a scant three years prior, and then you had a decade before that of, of sort of understanding Neil Young the artist. And so to hear this, um, e- even when there's a whole bunch of sort of the, the music uh, culture going in this direction, I, I, I totally understand that it's a little uh, shocking to hear it from this guy named Neil Young. But to my ear, these songs are all still very solid. A- a- and despite the fact that it is really hard to understand the lyrics at times. It's hard to comprehend what he's talking about without a lyric sheet. It's hard to know the words that he's saying. Uh, man, I, I, I think a lot of these hooks and beats and synths really work very well. Uh, computer Age, uh, Jeff had said, you know, there's a kernel of something good in there. I, I, I think Computer Age might be my favorite song on, on the album. Uh, it's a really good track. And, you know, it does have, of course the the synths and, and sort of the beats that make up a large part of trans but again when you listen and strip it down a little bit uh that that main hook goes dun 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 dun, dun which uh, uh dan mclachlan had, had reached out to me and was we were talking about the the satisfaction sort of morphing into uh the uh Oh, Mr. Soul. Mr. Soul, thank you. And, and and how so the stone sort of took that back by taking the Mr. Soul riff and turning it sideways in a jump and jack flash. Well, computer age, that's that's just that jump and jack flash riff. Uh, you know, turn a little bit. Dun 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 dun. Uh, that sort of draws you in to this this song. And this is such a, an oddly mixed and produced album too. Uh, you know, when when the vocals come in on computer age, you actually sort of hear this this tape hiss that also comes in with the vocals. places but uh you know a song like we are in control you know very devo-esque we talked last time about that odd uh or at least unusual collaboration between neil young and, and devo and you you know knowing that perhaps explains a bit better what's happening in some of these songs sample and hold which chef has referenced a few times as that just this unrelenting mechanical beat inside of it i'm really drawn to some of these tracks and uh, and jeff mentioned too uh, taking some of these trans tracks and sort of using the island tracks, and they don't sound similar, right? But I was trying to figure out sort of what that means. And and what I came away with is perhaps this. On these trans tracks, Computer Age and Transform Man, We Are Control, it's very hard to hear what's being said, right? It's very hard to hear the lyrics, very hard to know what some of the messages are. The songs we hear clearly 
little thing called love, which I like a lot. That slide yeah. guitar, it's got a real big hook. Uh, hold on to your love. What we hear over and over again, when we hear clearly, are these songs about love, right? Simple love, love being the message. And the other messages on the album are sort of layered and uh, you know cacophonous at times and buried in these vocoders. But what he wants us to hear clearly are these lyrics about about love. And again, knowing some of the background and knowing what was happening around this time, I don't. I'm, I'm not sure that's that's accidental. Uh, so I, I do think, I mean, yes, before coming to trans, it's one of those albums that gets kicked around and is a reference point for being, you know, bad creative decision. And I certainly, certainly don't think it deserves to be as maligned as it, as it has been. I think this is one of his, as I said earlier, it's one of his most underrated albums. It's one of the best albums of the last 40 years of his career. I, I uh, think I look at the lyrics of a song like we are in control and, and, Neil must have sounded like a crazy person in 1982. In 2021, that song is prophetic. You know, we control the data brinks, we control the think tanks, the flow of air, the traffic flights, the computer flights, the chief of staff. That we control the TV sky, we control the FBI. It's the way that you, know, the computer age, has completely taken over our lives in every respect, in every fashion and form. That wasn't true in 1982. It's absolutely true in 2021. song actually resonates in a way that you would never have expected to but of course the best song on this record and one that is definitely making my top five at the end of the show is transformer man i already talked about this song on our patreon only tribute songs episode and as jeff pointed out it's a tribute to his son it's a tribute to ben and i think this is the definitive version i love hearing it when it's sung in the vocal cord because there's a purity of it and also sort of the emotional import of the lyrics is so heavy, it's so powerful that I understand almost why it should be disguised in that angelical, vo that angelic vocoder voice. Those, those, those lines where you know he sings, you know, you know, Transformer Man, you're still in command. Your eyes are shining on a beam through the galaxy of love. Unlock the secrets. Let us throw off the chains that hold you down. It's such a powerful lyrics so moving about you know just wanting to be able to communicate with your son and knowing that he loves you and that he can't say it but you know he feels it and that one day he's going to be able to show you how much you mean to him and how much you know you're going to be able to make sure he understands how much he means to you such a beautiful and powerful song and when it came out it was treated like a joke
shame. You know, people didn't want this kind of music from Neil Young. They certainly didn't expect it. And, uh, you know, people use it now kind of as a joke uh, because, you know, why is Neil Young singing through a vocoder? Who does he think he is? Do you think he's Devo? Well, actually, yeah. Neil Young kind of did have some of those Devo-like instincts. That's why he ended up working with them. That's why he liked the Rebels. He was always a guy who was himself a rebel. And there's no greater example of rebellion than what comes next, which is, I say to this day, the greatest punking of a record label <laughs> ever. So what happened? Neil Young uh, releases Trans. It is a smash flop, as you might imagine. And uh, then he goes back into the studio, and what does he want to do? Well, he's going to do another country album. He's going to record an album he wants to call Old Ways. And that shouldn't be a shock. Neil's done a lot of country up until this point. You know, there's there's everything from Harvest to American Stars and Bars and Comes Time and the second half of Hawks and Doves. This is a little bit more trad Nashville country, but it's nothing crazy. Uh, he submits it to Geffen, and Geffen actually just rejects it and says, no, you need to go and record some rock music. We signed you to be a rock and roll musician. Why aren't you rocking out like you rocked out on Russ Never Sleeps, Neil? So what does Neil do? He just sort of smiles. And he says, all right, you wanted rock? Here's some rock. I recorded an entire album of rock for you. In fact, I'm even going to call it Everybody's Rockin'. And, of course, he didn't record rock. It was Rockabilly, 1950s Rockabilly, complete with slapback echo and, you know, like two-minute-long songs. Uh, it was just a giant fuck you to Gavin to say, like, I'm not going to give you what you want. You said you wanted rock. I gave you rock. But, uh, you know, it's like the genie, right? You know, you, you make the genie <laughs> wish, and the genie, you know, obviously doesn't give you what you're actually thinking of. It gives you some perverted version of it on purpose. Whatever you do, because the things I do today will make a scene out of you. If a man is making music, they ought to let his record And that's everybody's rock. And I wish I could say that the album itself was any good, but it's its primary virtue is as a giant cosmic joke played upon Geffen Records. And I guess its secondary virtue is that it's only 25 minutes long. But it's just, I don't like a single friggin' thing on this record. Everything is as simple as the title implies, right? Uh, there's a song called Jelly Roll Man. There's a song called Kind of Fonda Wanda, which I guess he would sing to his wife, and his wife liked it a lot, so it ends up on the show. a song called Betty Lou's Got a Brand New Pair of Shoes, which is about a woman named Betty Lou who has a brand new pair of shoes. <laughs> uh, Pale of Blues, uh, which actually, being a radio guy, I, I, I don't mind uh, the uh, song about trying to pay to get your song on the radio. Uh, Neil's line is, no matter, uh, no matter where I go, I never hear my record on the radio. Uh, it's no question why when you hear everybody's rocking, because no one was going to play this stuff. MTV did. They had a huge contest giving away Neil Young's pink Cadillac. And there's, if you go to YouTube, there's a really embarrassing little thing with Neil Young and the, uh, and the band where they're uh, surprise coming off stage that, oh no, MTV's giving away Neil Young's Cadillac. It's kind of funny. It's probably the funniest thing about the record. Um, 
and I, I, I guess he was kind of in character, right, as this 50s rocker for a lot of his time, too, which is weird. Wondering was the single, and they made a video for it, and that's a song from, like, I think, 71, 72. That's an old... No, it's even earlier than that. It's 1969. Yeah. 69. I mean, that's an old, old song. Not as it's old as the... It's on the Fillmore Live record. Yeah. Yeah. Not as old it's as actually, the style. It's probably so. the best song on the record, but it's not even... The thing is, like... There are like several recordings of that you can find in the archives. As Jeff pointed out, it's on the live the Fillmore record. There's some studio recordings there too. It's a fun little song. It's not great, but somehow they managed to make it worse. <laughs> they somehow managed yeah. to make it worse on this version. I'm wondering. The only thing that I'll add here, uh, on top of all the other criticisms leveled at it, I'll come up with another one, um, and it is the definition of an inessential recording. You, you, you need to listen to this exactly once in your life, if you haven't. Um, it is a horrible digital recording with digital effects that are a, a pale Xerox of actual rockabilly slapback reverb, which was done in a, in a reverb tank, like a big box. Um, and we're going to see this in the 80s grow and grow. Uh, for, a, for a guy like Neil Young, who was always kind of seen as Mr. Analog, he actually becomes obsessed with recording technology. In the Really recently, a few years ago, he, he attempted uh, one of the first uh, lossless digital music players called Pono. Um, and that went nowhere. That kind of fell on his face. Uh, but way before that, he dabbling in new instrumentation and getting into early direct to digital recording and like a lot of these early adopters of digital in the studio uh, he put out a lot of these albums that sound really flat and, and lifeless right. and that's going to become a, a, a bigger you're gonna, problem you're going to hear a, more of that a few minutes. Yeah. yeah exactly <laughs> yeah well i'll tell you where it isn't necessarily a problem although you can hear some of that digital recording technique on it, it is on old ways which is he finally after everybody's rocking he went back and he he recorded a few more songs he submitted a rejiggered track listing of it and it finally came out in 1985 and um this is a cromulent record i happen to like it it's pleasant there's nothing really shocking about it. There's some real beauty, you know, on it. Like the Wayward Wind is a wonderful, beautiful little ballad that opens the record. Uh, there's one track on it that actually stands out as being really, really, I think, a remarkable, you know, kind of an all-time Neil Young classic that's been forgotten. But for the most part, I think this one is just treated as like uh, another one of these weird footnotes. The strange thing about it is that I just feel like, you know, if it had been released in a different era and maybe, you know, without all these weirdo albums coming before it, it would have been a lot more successful than it was because I don't think there's anything to really object to on old ways. But it is straight trad country. I mean, complete with, uh, geez, who is he singing with on uh, Are There Any More Real Cowboys, Scott? Willie Nelson. Yeah, he's got Willie Nelson on this record, okay? It's, it's, it's a fine record. But it isn't a massive highlight in any way. It's not no. comes a time to me, and I know you guys. He's got Waylon Jennings on a lot of the other tracks too, yep. right? Yep. Singing back up. So, what do you guys think of this one? 
I mean, it beats everything else he did for Geffen, but that's a pretty low bar to clear. <laughs> I'm not so sure of that. Oh, okay, okay. I, I mean, think I would agree. I think that's essentially right. Um, it's nice. It's pleasant. There's nothing revelatory here. Uh, the, the, the production is already a problem for me. Uh, it, it has that bright, punchy '80s country sheen to it, which a lot of Neil's, you know, sort of straight country, country western stuff doesn't have. But it, but it's it's apparent to me on on old ways that Willie's song is my favorite song uh, on the album. Are there any more real cowboys? Are there any more country families still working? doesn't sound rushed doesn't sound forced it seems organic it feels organic it's a pretty good song uh yeah waylon jennings is on here uh, on a few tracks um <laughs> there's um i don't know what instrument it is but on get back to the country there's an instrument that goes sproing and so i i do kind of enjoy that addition onto the album but um this is not i guess it's, it's just nice it's pleasant. It, I think it's his best. Get, well, uh, trans is probably better, but but it's a it's a good Gafford record. But that's kind of damning with faint praise. You know what I will. You know what I will say. Just in terms of uh, teeing up a segue for Jeff, I think the best thing about this album is that it got him out on the road with the International Harvesters. Right. And right. hearing and hearing those recordings, that's the best thing to come out of old ways. Right. I agree with what Jeff just said there. Uh, I'm going to, before I leave this though, I do think that Misfits is a song that really deserves a lot more attention than it gets. It's a genuinely haunting, spooky, almost ghostly like song. Uh, it's got that great lyric was like, down in the old box canyon where only the Misfits can go. He rides with no companion, but a saloon and rodeo. And, you know, you have these sort of like weird, haunting sounding voices that are kind of cropping up in the background it, <clears throat> it's it's the only thing on the record that sounds like a departure from straight country and it has that sort of neil young uh, has the spook so to speak which is a phrase that he would like to use when he talked about you know like some of his favorite recordings with crazy horse like you know the really inspired stuff has the spook in it it has the weirdness to it i really think misfits is the standout song on old ways Way down in south dakota
And ironically enough, I don't think they ever really performed it live. They certainly didn't perform it on a treasure, which is the first of the archival releases that we're going to talk about. Of course, there's, you know, we've been mentioning throughout these series of shows, Neil Young's now started releasing a ton of live archival recordings. This is one of the most essential ones that he ever did. It's called A Treasure, and it's live from 1984, some shows from 1985 with the International Harvesters, just like Jeff mentioned. This is the band that was the same band that played on Old Ways for the most part, but you got Rufus Thibodeau on fiddle, which is just a fantastic fiddler, and you got Ben Keith there playing pedal steel. Um, this music is stunning. Uh, the, There's some old songs on it. Most of it is new stuff or some stuff that's never even been released, like Soul of a Woman and stuff like that. Um, Nothing is Perfect is a great little country ballad. Um, but he takes some of his older songs and redoes them in an amazing way. Southern Pacific sounded so clunky on Reactor, and they just turn it into this absolutely driving train song. When they play it live, you know, the, the drums are just do the, they do the, the chicka 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 Suddenly it came through to me like, oh, this is a really big train song. Like, you'd think that would have been obvious from the original version, but Crazy Horse was not capable of playing it that way. Uh, Flying on the Ground is Wrong uh, is one of my favorite Buffalo Springfield Neil Young songs. And this is the best version that I've ever heard. <laughs> it with such passion this band was somehow you know unveiling the country skeleton underneath it i didn't realize that it had such a country flavor to it um uh but the number one track here is gray riders it's the it's the one that ends the the set uh it suddenly right in the middle of the song out comes neil young playing his guitar and suddenly it sounds like Crazy Horse is playing on the stage with them. It's just a fantastic band playing music that was never heard in its time. And it almost redeems the entire whole, like, you know, mid-80s, you know, experimental phase of Neil Young's career to me. That voice was calling and it cut through the night.
live album, uh, 8485, and songs that do come off a little flat on record uh, sound more vivid, more live, and there's a, there's a palpable joy that can be heard in the performance of these songs in a live venue. Uh, Jeff already mentioned the, the uh, Flying on the Ground is Wrong, which seems like we talked about so long ago, but it was only back in part one. And um, uh, Soul of a Woman is another one of the new songs, um, or the, the unreleased songs on, on uh, Treasure. Uh, that's really good. It's sort of ball, uh, 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 barroom blues uh, track. Uh, you know, th- this live album, and, and there, there'll be more live albums to come, and certainly more from the archives, too, that we may or may not talk about. But this is one that, uh, that yes, sort of transcends the, the record work, the recorded work. Uh, when these guys get on stage, it turned into something else. I would say that if you even have a passing interest in country music, anybody who's listening, you, you should hear this. Um, I think it's the most satisfying thing he did in the 80s by far, and that might even include Freedom. Um, and this isn't Nashville country either. This is pretty much straight up Bakersfield country. Um, it's got a, there's a lot of twang in it. There's a lot of fiddle in it. This is early dust bowl, uh, sawdust on the floor country. Um, the, the two things that really jump out at me are, as Jeff said, um, which is a Southern Pacific, but also motor city from reactor. I mean, it's, it's such a treat to hear these songs and just think, oh my goodness, there really was something under there. It just needed a performance to bring it out. My old car keeps breaking down. My new car ain't from Japan. There's already too many Toyotas in this town. Another that commercial on TV says that Detroit can't build great cars anymore Who's driving my car now? Who's driving my car I, I love this one, and, and I think it, it might make my top two at the end, although there's that, that I may change my mind four times on that before we get there. <laughs> there are 38 other albums to compete with, so <laughs> we, we have to focus on that. And, of course, you know, now we come to the – I guess everybody you know, agrees that this is the spiritual, creative uh, rebirth of Neil Young, uh, his greatest album, maybe you know even better than On the Beach or Tonight's the Night. Of course, what I'm talking about is Landing on Water from 1985 everyone loves landing on water no i'm kidding this one is hated even more than trans and everybody's rocket this one is a real tough one to wrap your arms around but i am going to make a defense of it (laughs) i actually like landing on water the minute you turn the album on you will immediately know why everyone else hates it because (laughs) the drum sounds and the synth sounds on this are so amazingly dated the drums on Landing on Water. If you people, you guys listen to Invisible Touch by Genesis, and you complain about Phil Collins' drumming on that album, you know. And it, I'm saying, listen, you got no idea, buddy. You have no idea how bad drum sounds were, pay, were 
capable of getting during the mid 80s and here you have basically the nadir of them it's just really tough to listen to however i I gotta say there are some really good songs on this record that if you can get past the horrible drum slaughter are really good you know hippie dream is one that people do sometimes recognize it's neil young's very kind of grim and a dark take on you know where did all of the uh, you know the hippie trippy CSN stuff from the early seventies really you know take us at the end of the day? This is during a period where David Crosby was not only you know had been a hopelessly you know, crack junkie, but actually went to prison. He was in jail at this point. He went to jail in Texas for drug trafficking. So he he spent like a year in prison. Um, and so that's why, you know, uh, Neil is, is singing lines like, you know, but the wooden ships, you know, were just a dream. The wooden ships were just a hippie dream. You know, tie-dye sails and the screaming sheets and the dusty trails lead to blood in the streets. <laughs> it's a really dark, dark song about the hippie dream capsized in excess. Uh, you've got to love the, the, the bite of those lyrics. And, uh, Kind of, you know, proving that Jackson Brown was right all along when he wrote for every man, but back in 1972. The rest of this album's production style can be so tough to get past. I like 80s music. You know, it was my generation. Um, so I don't have the same problems with this that everyone else does, but I can understand why people just want to spit the bit. It's not the, I mean, the drums are bad. It's not the drums for me. It's that synth bass that is just so hard to listen to. It's essentially a three piece here. It's Steve Jordan on drums, Daddy Korchmar. And, and Neil Young, Daddy Korchmar would do a bunch of stuff with Don Henley during the decade. He was really involved in, um, I think, both Building the Perfect Beast and then and, End of the Innocence. But he plays a lot here, too. Hippie Dreams, okay, yeah, might be one of the better songs here. I also think it could soundtrack a stakeout scene in Beverly Hills Cop 2. That's the sound <laughs> of the synth bass. It's ridiculous, and it's everywhere. And then you add the huge gated drums. You add the vocals being really buried in a lot of places. Uh, so like Touch the Night, the chorus is okay. Getting there is a slog. It's really hard to get there through the verses of Touch the Night. Uh, Violent Side, which I think is the album opener, maybe the second track. Uh, the, the chorus is just this cacophony of effects and drums and voices and how many layers of digital yeah. recording can we put on top of each other. I tried very hard to find the songs here. Uh, that might be buried underneath, and I, I didn't. 
I, I just didn't. <laughs> it's I did. not my I mean, guy. look, Bad News Beat, that's like a really fun pop song. really clever little keyboard line there it as long as you tell yourself this isn't neil young this is just somebody in the 80s making a pop song i think it works really well i also would say the same about pressure i think pressure is a great song it's got a really great chorus that whole don't feel don't feel feel pressure for me that is a really catchy hook um i don't even think the production does that any disfavors as well i think it works out Now, this is Jeff's favorite album, so I wanted to know what he thought about it. Yeah, I'm on, I'm on Team Scott here. Um, yeah. But up to now, we've had what turned out to be some pretty decent songs, but with problems in the production choices or the recording or what have you. Here, I think we get to a point where the songs aren't there either. And I think it's telling to that end that we never saw these these songs get a, a different reading in a live setting or a re-recording mm-hmm. or what have you that we've seen in so many other songs. It's like Neil just sort of recorded them and then forgot about them also. And, hey, and, and mercifully, that's all I'm going to have to say about that record. The next album for me is actually what I consider to be the low point of Neil Young's 80s. And that's, you know, it, it should have been auspicious. Neil Young gets back together with Crazy Horse. And not only does he get back together with Crazy Horse, but they do a Rust Never Sleeps, which is to say this is all live with the audience tracks stripped out. Um, he records it live. Only two songs come from the studio, just like Rust, for that matter, uh, which had Pocahontas and Sail Away were actually studio recordings. Um, and yet, God, this is just – it's called Life, 1987's Life. And it is, to me, just utterly generic and lifeless sounding. I feel it was ironic they called it Life because <laughs> this thing sounds dead in almost every way. There's one song on here that I really like, which is Around the World, which has a really nifty middle eight section, you know, fashion change, style change. And again, it has those glossy synth keyboard sounds that I actually like when he's playing, you know, synth pop music. 
God, the rest of this just sounds completely drained of energy, and the songs are so generic. Some of these still survived in his set, by the way. Like, When Your Lonely Heart Breaks, Prisoners of Rock and Roll, those still get played you know, every now and then in concert. I don't know why. I don't think they're good. I mean, I think the, the funniest thing about this album is the ending of Prisoners of Rock and Roll where, like, Neil actually sings, that's why we don't want to be good. Hey, congratulations, Neil. You're not. <laughs> This is also my least, I think it's the worst album of certainly the Geffen uh, stretch. I don't know if it's the worst album of his career, but it's really close if it's not. Uh, even Around the World, which Jeff mentioned, does have that little nice break. The drums sound like bricks in a dryer. It's just recorded terribly, too. Uh, Prisoners of Rock and Roll is not good. Too Lonely, I joke to you guys as to whether or not Sammy Hagar deserved a co-write on that due to the lyrics. I got a keychain, good luck charm, I drive a fast car, got a good arm. Um, this is the album that makes me ask in earnest, and I'll ask you guys, are we absolutely sure that Neil Young wasn't holding back some of his good stuff? During this Geffen record deal, because we haven't mentioned this in detail yet, but you know Geffen actually filed a lawsuit against Neil Young and said, you're recording music that is not representative of Neil Young. Uh, this was before. <laughs> this is one right? of the most famous lawsuits of all time. It happened after Everybody's Rocking. Yeah. Uh, you know, after he put that one out as you know a big middle finger, that yeah, his own record label, which he signed because it was supposed to be like an artistic haven that would let him be free to do whatever it is he wanted. Geffen sues him, <laughs> and then he countersued for like like sixty two million dollars or something like that. Ugh. Uh, I mean, the thing is, is Geffen should never have sued him. He lost so much credit in the eyes of like artists mm -hmm. for it, right? Uh, but he had a point. I mean, look at this stuff. It's so intentionally and willfully strange. And plus, you know, you throw this, the, the, the album's called Life. He's behind bars on the cover. There's a there's a song called Prisoners of Rock and Roll where, again, as Jeff mentioned, the lyric is, that's why we don't want to be good. Again, this just prompts the question in my mind. Yeah, It's totally lacking in any stylistic coherence, too. Uh, you've got songs that don't quite get to hair metal territory, but close. May I, you wrote down uh, Sammy Hagar. I actually wrote down Night Ranger in my, in, in my notes. Hey, I, I like Night Ranger. I didn't mind Night Ranger, <laughs> but I, that's not what I go to Neil Young for. Right. Um, it's a couple songs that are more restrained and maybe have some promise. I remember Long Walk Home got a little radio play, but it's got those terrible cannon blasts. Yes, the cannon blast. It's oh, like a why? nice old, it's an old-fashioned piano, Neil, harmonica ballad. And in fact, the reason it is is because it comes from 1972. It's yeah. from before time fades away is when it comes from. Yeah. But yeah, and then the stupid gunfire in the background. Like, ah! it, like it's, yeah, like it's an ACDC encore. Um <laughs> I, and I like the cannons, and for those about to yeah, rock, right. exactly. it's just what it sounds like. It's such a And then I even like Inca Queen a little bit, but again, somehow in 
what alternative universe did he think it was a good idea to use the word Inca in a song title for the second time in three albums? <laughs> After already Inca. having... You have Cortez the Killer, Pocahontas, like an Inca, and Inca Queen, and it's diminishing returns all the way down. It's like, somebody, <laughs> it's like they were playing Mad Libs and somebody dared him. Hey, Neil, I dare you to use Inca again. And he's like, challenge accepted. Right. <laughs> so I'm your man. And then, of course, the song also has these really kind of even more embarrassing now, but it was embarrassing back then. If you listen in the background, there are backing vocals that go like, Hima homa, yes. Hima homa. Like, like, like you stereotype Indian noises. Yeah. Like like American Indians, by the way. Not like, not like Incans, by the way, for the matter. But geez, yeah, it's, it's just, it's actually not a terrible song, like on its musical bones. But yeah, every every little decision, production or, or style-wise, that seems to have been made makes it worse. Um, and you know, you're asking whether he was holding back. Well, that's a really funny question because I think that like right after this is the last album he releases with Gaffin Records, and what does he do? He goes back to Reprise, back to his old home where he still remains to this day. And then he immediately starts putting out real music. Right. <laughs> he wasn't incapable. I, I know. And so the first thing he does is like he's not done experimenting by by a long shot. He has a, a really interesting left turn, and one that I think is actually better represented live than it is in the studio. He put he goes into sort of like soul man, blues man, like big horns, big horn charts. You know, like blues guitar instrumentals. He wants to be like. You know, the kind of guy who plays in a dive bar and plays blues rock in, you know, you know Nashville or in, in Kentucky or something like that. And that's how you get the album, This Note's For You. think the album itself in the, as as recorded in the studio is it has some really good songs on it uh usually they're the slower songs actually i think when, when neil slows down uh he he brings the spook out of himself you know mm -hmm. he, he gets he, he gets you know when he plays these, these like slow dirges and ballads the bluesy ballads he really finds something that he can connect to Coupe, Coupe uh, deville to me is the highlight of that yeah. what you're talking about that's just a really bluesy jazz i even have i mean I'm, i don't want to make a direct comparison clearly but I, it's it's you know, it's almost him getting back in on the beach mode this is just a very introspective uh, sort of self-gaze in a minor key and it's slow to develop and it's, it's something you can really grab onto. Well, I hit the wall Woke up this morning And I hit the wall Yeah, I hit the wall Woke up this morning 
carry this monkey around. I think Twilight is even better than that, for that matter. Although I think the version of Twilight to really hear is the one on, on the, the live Blue Note Cafe, which I'll talk about in a second. But of course, we can't talk about this notes for you without talking about its great title track, which is just a hoot and a half. Where you know Neil's, this is during the age where like you know the you know, beer, Michelob, Michelob, yeah, like where you know Genesis tonight's tonight tonight is is in the Michelob ad, right? Yeah, after and midnight, every, and, and yeah, and they're sponsoring concert tours, and everybody's selling out left and right. And so, what does Neil Young do? First lines of this song: "Ain't singing for Pepsi, ain't singing for Coke. It would make me a joke. This note's not for anyone. This note's for you." And it's just funny, and it's even funnier if you've seen the, the, the music video, which Neil Young made knowing full well that MTV would never play it in a million years. Because not only does it insult all their corporate sponsors, like you know Sony and Pepsi and Coke and all the beer companies, they ain't singing for Spuds. Spuds McKenzie, is a, you remember Spuds McKenzie, the dog? Oh, yeah. Um, yeah, I do too, man. It was, this yep. was my childhood. But also, he like makes a carrier. Yeah, exactly. He makes brutal fun of Michael Jackson and Whitney Houston. Dude, he even has – this is almost tasteless. He actually parodies Michael Jackson catching on fire with, yeah. during the filming of the Pepsi ad, which was like a really – it was actually a really Burned scary Burned his scalp, thing. yeah. yeah. It was like really terrifying for Michael Jackson. And Neil Young has like a Michael Jackson impersonator catching on fire. Like doing it, it's like really kind of almost very edgy in its, in its own way. But it's a hilarious video to a song that is one of one of Neil's best punchline songs of all time. Now, do you believe he was in a band with Rick James? Yeah. Now, are you convinced? <laughs> yes. Point being, he, he clearly digs this kind of music. Yeah, you, can, you can feel the energy in a way you haven't in a few albums. Um, now, there's a couple big disclaimers, though. Number one, nobody's ever going to confuse Neil Young for a blues rock guitar player. Uh, right. there's, no, there's no Joe Bonamassa type soloing going on here. And he doesn't. He also doesn't have a voice that's built for like soul crooning or blues rock. So he's 0 for 2 there. But but as a blues rock soul band band leader, he kind of pulls it off. Uh, if the songs are solid, the, the, the charts behind him are good. And there's, there's a couple hilarious stories about um, who does he he gets a couple professional horn players, but then he sticks his guitar tech, Larry Craig, in the horn section. He's like, yeah, yeah, you play a saxophone. And then Ben Keith, his pedal steel uh, player, he puts him in the horn section too. Here, have a saxophone. Uh, you do a good job. And they make it work. <laughs> it's a very creditable performance. Yeah. I don't, think, I don't think either one of them had really played much horns before, but whatever. Um, 
Yeah, again, I think it suffers a little bit from the 80s production where it's overly polished and flat and digital. Um, and of course, there are some better versions of the, of the songs and what's on the album. Uh, the, the one I always remember is um, Ten Men Working, mm -hmm. which which got a lot of radio play at the time. Uh, that's a really fun rave up with the with the backing horns and all that. Um, but I think some of the some as Jeff said, some of the better material here uh, works better live on the Blue Note Cafe recordings. So talk about and that. The, yeah, just take yeah, us and, to that. And there's even some stuff that was never uh, that was never on the original studio album. Like again, he's got this habit of writing and recording really good songs that for whatever reason never make it to the album. Number one here, of course, is Ordinary People. Um, it shows up again in another version on Chrome Dreams 2 in 2007, I think. Which is actually uh, from the Blue Notes era band. It's yeah. just like a, a, but right. it's so much better live. He, he, he just put it in the can. Uh, at, but this live version, which I think is the, the recorded version is 16 minutes. This live version is 12 or 13 minutes. Um, it just works. In, there, there's so much wrong with it on its face, but it just works in spite of itself. You know, let's write a kind of a Bruce Springsteen song. Let's put a massive horn section behind it. Let's make it 12 minutes long and put in a bunch of lyrics about Patrick Brown people and Lee Iacocca people. It's absurd, but I just love listening to it. It's like this great guilty pleasure that just goes on and on and on. Everyone you know, listens to ordinary people just once. And it's something about that little piano lick, and I love the way you, you related it to like a Bruce Springsteen well, song, because it does it does have a little Roy Bitten feel it, there. Is that Roy Bitten on piano? It, it, no, it's, but you're yeah, mistaken for thinking so. Right, you know, and that's by the way the reason why I've never liked the studio version on Chrome Dreams, which I guess we can mention in passing later on, because it's like a weird synthy, gloopy, you yeah. know, version of that. It just sounds all wrong. But here it's like a real piano. Um, I love the Blue Note Cafe release. It, it, it takes just like it samples from the best of a bunch of shows from 1987 and 1988, and it is a long lunker of releases. It's two discs. Both of them are chock full of music, 80 minutes long each. So it's not, you know, it, it's not for the faint of heart. You know, you're going to be listening to this for a long time, but the band swings. The groove is real. Everybody clearly seems to be having a wonderful time. 
The remakes are really satisfying. Like they do a version of um, Bad News Comes to Town, which is a song that, again, was on Archives Part 2. It's just like a little sad acoustic demo about the dissolution of his relationship with Carrie Snodgrass. They turn it into this long, smoking soul blues, and it's so wonderful. Another one I actually mentioned already, but I just want to say again, is um, Twilight, uh, which is, I think, one of the best songs on the actual This Notes For You album. But this live version, from that opening little horn chart that they play to open the song, all the way through, eight minutes long, I don't get bored with a single second of it. One last thing that I have to mention is this has the definitive version of a song that would go on to be one of the major features of his next record, a record that everybody knows. And that's Crime in the City, 60 to 0, part one. This is the way to hear it, folks. This is so much more exciting. He did two versions of this on the Blue Notes tour. He did an acoustic arrangement, and he did this full band arrangement. The acoustic arrangement is the one that actually he ended up using for Freedom. Uh, but this full band arrangement where you know he's playing electric guitar and the horns are blasting out too, 
this is the way to hear that song. It is an epic moment, and it's just, you know, one of the reasons I just love these archival releases and I will buy them until <laughs> the day I die is because you're always going to find something fun and valuable on them, no matter what era they come from. <laughs> thing i'll add very quickly on i guess the whole blue notes experiences jeff mentioned that neil's guitar wasn't a great match or an exact match for this sort of bluesy material you know he's not ripping off epic uh you know technical solos which might have might have been your point but i i think his tone really fits in well uh with the material with the way the band plays especially in the live setting um, so again, while it's not sort of this this uh, you know down home blues technical explosion, um, I, I think the tone and the way he plays actually fits the material really well. The band is just really fun to listen to. They fit like a comfortable shoe, you know. They just like everybody seems to be familiar with one another. They, it's not stiff. It doesn't sound uptight. It couldn't be farther away from that horrible sound that was from the, the crazy horse the life stuff which is again those were live performances they sound like they were created by computers uh, this stuff this stuff doesn't have anything like that at all it sounds organic it sounds real it sounds like neo has said uh, yeah you maybe he was holding back and, and now he's finally seemed to found some more enjoyment to come from music again which i guess brings us to the one that people have probably been waiting for us to talk about for quite some time now which is neil young Suddenly, Reagan is out of office, and his beloved cowboy president is no longer around, and now there's some Yaley, uh, some, some, some annoying blue-blooded Yaley Republican in office, George H.W. Bush. So Neil suddenly starts getting his political conscience back. And I got to tell you, when Neil gets his political dander up, I, I am always in for this. I, I, I think it always sort of inspires him. It, you know, he starts to care again. He gets angry. It doesn't always work, as we'll see when we get to the uh, 2000s. But uh, I, I really, really love freedom. And, of course, this, as I mentioned way back at the start of our first episode, this is the first Neil Young album I ever got. This is where my introduction to Neil begins. It begins because we saw a performance on Saturday Night Live when I was eight, I believe, and my brother was nine. Uh, we were allowed to stay up late and watch SNL. I can't even remember who the guest was. Who the hell remembers anything else that was done on the show? The only thing anybody remembers from that episode of, of uh, Saturday Night Live is Neil Young jumping around like a maniac on the stage playing Rockin' in the Free World.
the song that basically restarted his career. How do you think Geffen must have felt seeing this? <laughs> you know, after after that, that entire decade of the '80s, and then all of a sudden now he's like suddenly put out the most immediate and relevant hard rock and music of his life. God, I, I think this album is a great album. I think the first thing I want to point out about it, and I'm going to let you guys talk about it, is that this album has always got a kind of a mistaken reputation. People think of this as the rebirth of like all oh, hard rock and neo. Mm. It's not really hard rocking in the slightest. Rocking in the free world, the last song on the record, that is obviously a classic rock anthem pearl jam always uses uses it to close their shows i mean it's obviously got its pedigree but the rest of this album is very different there's lots of beautiful piano ballads sort of weird whaley you know acoustic numbers bizarre cover of on broadway that i just adore <laughs> um and then there's of course crime in the city which is a really good version but it's the acoustic based version it's not the, like the, the rocked up band version and and it, it has that same Russ Never Sleeps sort of a bracketing you know trick where it opens and closes with uh, different versions of the song, but yeah, this is the one that by all accounts is where Neil returned to form, and you know the accounts are correct. This really is a huge return to form in my opinion. Now the shooting starts. And the first side is probably my favorite stretch of music from this 40-year era we're talking about today. Freedom probably is my favorite album uh, from, from this era. It's one of the few from like this point forward in which we're not going to say, man, that's a bit too long. It could have edited some off. Uh, it, it is an hour long. We're entering the CD era here. But I, I think it earns all of it. Uh, all, all, all 12 songs, all whatever, 61 minutes of freedom works. And it's also one of the, probably one of the last times, and one of the reasons I like freedom more than I like Ragged Glory, is it's one of the few times remaining in his career that he's, he's trying something, he's pushing in a direction that's a little new and a little different and successfully makes it happen. Uh, Jeff mentioned, you know, Freedom's kind of thought of as a rock album generally because of Rockin' in the Free World. But, man, yes, there's so many sort of moody pieces. Uh, Don't Cry is so good. This funky rhythm, these kind so of... So haunting. The, the, right. the guitars in the background, it, it, it's ghostly. I love it so this much. Sort man. of metallic pipe strikes and shotgun blasts and really uncomfortable guitar. Oh,
so good. El Dorado is a highlight for me, too. The Spanish motif, the castanets playing. I like the pace of the song. The parable works. And then even on the, you know, the album as a whole, listen to Ways of Love and mm-hmm. how it was recorded. It's just such a better-sounding album. The drums pop. The vocals are sharp. The pedal steel just sort of knifes through the rest of the mix. That's a great song, but more than that, for my ears, is a great mix. It's a great, it's a really wonderfully recorded album. I don't know if the second half quite keeps up with the first half when it comes to saying, you know, classic, best ever sort of album. It's really close. No more, too far gone. That that closing kick, last three songs, I love. Um, uh, but 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 again, that first half, that first half stretch is my favorite part of of anything from this era of music from Neil Young. I don't think it's an accident that this works so well because it's so much like his great albums of the seventies in terms of how it's constructed. You know, he, he mines some old recording sessions uh, and, and, and in so, his songbook for, for spare parts, like with too far gone, which I think is one of his great country tinge songs. Right. It, it could be a Buck Owens song. Uh, it, it could be a, a George Jones song. Anybody could have done too far gone out of, out of Nashville or Bakersfield. Um, as, as Jeff said, he bookends the album with an acoustic and electric version of the same song, just on, uh, just like on um, Russ Never Sleeps. Uh, he's got some recording. He's recording with different lineups at different sessions at different mm-hmm. times. And he, he said at one point that, I don't know if he was making excuses after the fact, but he said that the, the different kind of songs and styles and production where he wanted it to feel like you were listening to the radio with all these different kinds of songs hitting you one after the other. Um, again, I don't know if that was some kind of ex post facto excuse making, but it, it, but it makes sense. And I think it works in, in a way that some of his more unfocused albums don't. Um, I like the way that one song leads to the next, where some of them are sort of sparse and haunting and the next one rocks and the next one is country-ish and the next one is acoustic. And, uh, it's it's great. It's still a good listen. I mean, the the the, I, the cover of On Broadway, I love. First of all, because that's just a solid song. It they is. say the neon lights are bright on Broadway. Weaver and Stoller. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. And then you have Neil singing it in his Neil Young voice, and then it just gets weirder and weirder as the song goes on. And then all at the end, he's like talking about street crime and drugs, and he's screaming about crack. He's like, "Give me that crack!" 
give me that crack. <laughs> like, what? I, I told you guys at the first episode, I was like, this is the song I heard when I was nine years old. We went out and bought Freedom. <laughs> and I was like, what the hell is going on here? Because I knew on Broadway, even then as a kid, I knew that song. That song was famous. It was like Petula Clark who sang it. It was a big famous hit from the 60s. Um, and uh, then I heard Neil's version of it. And I'm like, wait, this took a really weird, dark turn. And that was the first time I learned about what crack. I literally, my mom had one of those great moments where I went up to my mom and said, Mom, what's crack? She had to explain to me what crack was. Thanks, Neil. That's how I learned as a child. Uh, and the social conscience here is, is a real thing. And it really, really obviously comes to the fore on songs like Crime in the City. Um, ordinary People, which didn't make it onto the album, but is obviously from this era. And listen, we got to talk about rocking in the free world. That's a lyric. That lyric still gets me. It's a simple lyric when you think about it. But there are so many memorable images and moments from it. It's the second verse of that that just kills me. I remember it killed me and my brother when we were younger. You know, so, you know, there's the, you know, you see a woman on the street, you know, you know, shuffling her feet. She's like by a garbage can. And then she puts the kid away because she's going to get a hit. She hates her life and what she's done to it. That's one more kid that'll never go to school, that'll never, you know, get to grow up or fall in love. It'll never get to be cool. You know, and it's a simple thing, get to be cool. But like, yeah, I mean, you know, you get the image that like she's like throwing the kid away, like throwing yeah. him into a trash can. No, this, because she, his, his, um, his social conscience here is not sort of leftism by the numbers. It's, it's like it's it's, much, it's passionate. It's like very human. I see a woman in the night with a baby. And, and he's he's not just blaming the system. He's blaming some individuals here also. I mean, it, it, it's it's you know, there even 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 the political digs work like you got a thousand points of light 
for the starving man, you've got a kinder, gentler machine gun yep. hand. Like, damn, that's a good line. The, a machine, good line. the machine gun hand, because yeah, you think of like, you know, like with, like Central American, you know, interventions and stuff like that. It's a really powerful lyric, and it's the song that made Neil Young huge and relevant again. And this is, by the way, it's this song is the reason like all those grunge acts decided it was okay. It's cool again to admit that we love Neil Young. Mm-hmm. And you know, that's why Pearl Jam played all their songs. You know, obviously Kurt Cobain loved Neil Young. They all used him as a touchstone, sort of of rebellious independence and also fearlessness. And this is the album that revived him and changed his world. But it's also, again, you have to point out, it's not really a, a kind of a standard rock album the way people expect it to be. But do you know what is a rock album the way people expect it to be? <laughs> That's right. This one might be my favorite from the entire period. It's so hard to say. It's either this one or the next one. Uh, I'm talking, of course, about Ragged Glory, his big reunion with Crazy Horse. And I mean like the real reunion. He's had two Crazy Horse albums we've already talked about, and they've both been weirdly disappointing, obviously. Reactor and Life, God, the less said about that one, the better. Uh, but now you have – it's again, it's like, it's like throwing on like a really comfortable overcoat one that you've had in your closet for 30 years and you just know that it fits you well and it's going to keep you warm and everything is going to sound and feel wonderful. And that is exactly what we get on Ragged Glory. Uh, this is Crazy Horse and Neil rocking as hard as they've ever rocked. It's up there with Zuma. It's up there with Russ Never Sleeps. It's up there with Everybody Knows This Is Nowhere. This is the one that really just made him like a household name again, certainly for me and my family in my life, but I know for all my friends back in the day as well. And this is the one that uh, made Jeff go see him on tour, if I recall correctly. Absolutely, yeah. This is the crowning achievement of his late career. I put late in quotes, of course, because this is still 30 years ago. He'd have 30 <laughs> more years of music. Um, and you're right about Zuma. I think this, this album calls back to Zuma more than any other album. That's one thing I love about Zuma is how tight and focused and immediate Crazy Horse sounds. And you get that again here. Um, and it's especially true on the first three tracks, which two of which are from Zuma. Are they, Zuma are, <laughs> they are. Yeah. And, and it, it, it kind of economized a bit on everything I like about this band. Uh, we get some into some of the jammier flights of fancy later in the record, but 
country home, white line, f***ing up, one, two, three. That's that's all you need right there. What are they all, maybe four minutes each? Yeah. I mean, less, and, less well, well, country home is a long way. He jam- oh, it's like seven, it, yeah. It's like seven. Oh, okay, sorry. But it's like a really compact song. It, it feels tighter. It doesn't. Yeah. It feels tighter. And in fact, when they played it back on like the 76 tour, which I threw a clip of in way back on the first episode, it was only like a three and a half minute long song back then. So it has that feel for a reason. Sounds like a band desperate to say what they have to say, um, and yeah, the, the jammier tracks can get a little meandering and monotonous. Uh, especially "Love to Burn," which is probably the weakest one on there, mm-hmm. but they're not without their charms. Um, over and over has this great insistent riff that kind of yep. roots the song amid all of guitars, uh, amid all of his guitar noodling. Um, "Love and Only Love" kind of never gets old even nine minutes later uh, and i i gotta give a, a a shout out to farmer john the the great garage punk song that he unearthed like a like a garage rock archaeologist right he, got, he dusted that off and and it's a perfect song for crazy horse farmer john i'm in love with your daughter yeah the one with the champagne eyes i like the way she walk i like the way she talk i like the way she moves she wiggles when she walks there's it almost sounds like it could be a Neil Young lyric, frankly. Yeah, right? yeah, it does. In, in, in it's does. kind of T-bone mode, I suppose. Yeah, sure. Mama John, I'm in love with your daughter. Whoa. And the one with the champagne eyes. I love the way she walks. I mean, yeah, nothing about this record disappoints me. And the thing is that it doesn't let up, too. So, like, you know, it's not like, oh, the front half has got a lot of great songs, but then it kind of falls apart. Mansion on the Hill and mm-hmm. Days It Used to Be are both mm-hmm. fantastic songs. And they're short. They're, they're, they're kind of, you know, very compact pop rock songs. So like, the whole thing just is, as I said, it, it's like putting on a really comfy coat and going out on a, you know, like a, like a cold day in the winter and feeling warm. 
that's what I always, it's always the vibe that I've gotten from this record. I think that's probably because I think I bought it in the winter. I've always associated it with that kind of like a weather feeling, but it, it, it just, it's like, yeah, sitting by a fireplace. It's such a fun album. The two I can't s- believe I forgot. Oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead, Scott. I just, you know, Mansion on the Hill and Days That Used to Be I, I, are both great. Mansion on the Hill especially for me. I do think it's weird, at least in the way I hear those songs. I, I hear Mansion on the Hill as being sort of an indictment of his his 60s brethren, right? That psychedelic music fills the air. Peace and love still live there in that Mansion on the Hill. People have gotten rich off of this, you know, the, the 60s yeah. hippie culture. But then yeah, days, that's exactly what I get from it, yeah. But then days that used to be the very next song, I wish that I could talk to you and you could talk to me because there are very few of us left, my friend, from the days that used to be. At one point, pointing the finger and at the second point, wistful about the time he spent with those guys, uh, what, at that point, uh, 20, 20 years ago or so. But you both those songs multitudes. Are, yeah, both those songs are fantastic. <laughs> I agree with uh, Jeff over and over has that great hook, a uh, great hooky chorus. Um, and, and you guys have both made the Zuma comparison. It's obvious, but like, fuck it up. That to me is like drive back from Zuma. I, I can't yep. tell you exactly why I love it, but both those songs are, are, are two of my favorites. <laughs> and I, I would add that when I saw them on the psychedelic pill tour, they, they did fucking up um, and they jammed it out to probably 12 minutes, five of which, was Neil in pure um, T-bone mode, just repeating over and over, I'm just a fuck up. I'm just a fuck up. Oh, I'm so many a fuck up. So many well, bleeps for this show. Yeah, I, I'm sorry. Yeah, but. All right. Family podcast. Uh, I can't believe I forgot days that used to be. Though I actually wrote down the lyric as I was as I was thinking about this show. Um, Are you happy with your circumstance? Are you driving a new car? Mm -hmm. Does it get you where you want to go with a seven year warranty, or just another hundred thousand miles away from the days that used to be? That's great stuff. 
That's great stuff. Talk to me, my long lost friend. Tell me how you are. Are you happy with your circumstance? Are you driving a new car? Does it get you where you want to go? With a seven year warranty? Or just a And, and what do we think about Mother Earth, the uh, natural the anthem? Natural anthem. Does I like work? it. I like it. It's a little drippy, I suppose. But you know what? He's earned it after you know a slab, an hour-long slab of like you know relentless, crazy horse hard rock. I like Mother Earth. I think it, it's a nice way to end the record. I'm not a huge fan of the song. It might be well. Yeah, it might be my least favorite thing about Ragged Glory. I don't know if it's it closes as strong as I. Sort of wish it would. Well, Neil is now going from strength to strength. He's going from victory to victory. This is, of course, the period of his, you know, great like latter era revival. Uh, what's he do for an encore after Ragged Glory? He goes and records his greatest, in my opinion, his greatest ever live album. And I am not talking about Weld people. I'm actually talking about Way Down in the Rust Bucket, a record that was released. This year, this is a 2021 live archival release. It's from a show that he did, a secret show in November of 1990, I believe, uh, in like a small club in Santa Cruz, California. And it was like a warm-up gig for Crazy Horse. They were preparing to go back out on the road. So, you know, unbilled, goes and he plays for two and a half hours. The concert is literally nothing but ragged glory material, which nobody had ever heard extremely obscure stuff from the you know from the archives like you know surfer joe and mow the sleaze and bite the bullet and you know danger bird which had never even been played before um and uh, i think you know in terms of like you know, you know throwing a bone to the fans the only like well-known songs he plays is are like cinnamon girl and like a hurricane and cortez the killer at the end for two and a half hours they just go at it and it is absolutely flawless <laughs> I would listen to this album over any other live Neil Young album. And I include Massey Hall. I include Tonight's the Night, the Roxy one. And it's one of those things that I, the first time I had it on, I, I of course, it came out only, you know, like, like January, February of this year. And I listened to it sort of half attentively. I have the, um, the subscription to the Neil Young website, so that's where I can listen to it. And then I, I, I put it on again as we were preparing for the show. And I was just literally transfixed. I think this is better than Weld, and I think Weld is a fantastic album. And I guess maybe we should take these two simultaneously because he goes on this big worldwide tour. This is where Jeff saw them. Um, what do you think of these two live records? Because I think this is basically peak Neil.
They're both really good, and I guess unsurprising, coming off Racket Glory and Freedom. Um, they, they really were functioning really well as a band. Way Down in the Rust Bucket, I, I, I love the, the song choices on Way Down in the Rust Bucket. And one of the things about being a, as prolific as Neil Young is, uh, you know, an album a year essentially, and also having the, the, the quality control is that, uh, you know, you can go back and pick out some of these songs from the, uh, fr- from the archive that haven't been played in a while. Uh, I mean, Bite the Bullet on here is great. Uh, Mansion on the Hill, this live version here, is fantastic. But then you go back farther, Don't Cry No Tears, um, and Roll Another Number is, is on Way Down in the Rust Bucket. They, they yeah. sound really great. And, and, and just, a, you know, a couple of, I guess... The way I differentiate them in my mind, uh, in addition to the song choices, Will to me seems uh, like a little bit more, I mean, it's a, well, it's a double CD, it's, it's also two hours plus. There's a little bit more leg stretching on, uh, on Will. A little bit, I, I feel the songs are a bit jammier, and I guess some of the lengths on the songs, I mean, Cinnamon Girls twice its normal length, and it up almost seven minutes and uh, like a hurricane's longer and rocking the free world turns into nearly 10 minutes so it, it's guys on stage and, and this is one of those crazy horse things where you know they just lock in that groove and, and they can continue playing um passionately and uh and, and with purpose for quite a long time so that the perfect example is country home they open with that mm. the country home and it's you know, either you know you could think of it as like a great outtake from the '70s, or it's the first song on their upcoming album. It's nine minutes long, and and like all you have to do is just listen to that, listen to that nine minutes of them playing that song. And if you don't like it, well, you're probably not really a big Neil Young and Crazy <laughs> Horse fan. Like one song from each. Um, on Weld, I'll take Crime in the City. Uh, Jeff, you said that uh, your favorite version of that was on the Blue Note Cafe release. Um, I agree that that one's great. Um, for me, the definitive version is the version on Weld, which is just eons better than the acoustic version on Freedom. Uh, now, that's a real protest song and a protest song unlike really anything that had been, that had been written. Um, you know, it's about it. It's almost like the wire. It presages the wire, where it's taking like one verse has the perspective of the cop, one verse and has verse has the perspective of the kid 
who, you know, his family and his friends are all kind of down in the same uh, poor circumstances that he is. And he's resorted to, to dealing drugs and everything. And it just gives this multiplicity of perspectives while rocking amazingly hard. That'll be on my top five. I mean, I think if the one I had to choose from Weld, it would would actually be a song that I really don't like at all in its original version. And it's not one of Neil's. It's one of Bob Dylan's. When we did our Bob Dylan three-part episode with Andrew Carell, it was actually kind of – I made it a point to not excerpt Blowing in the Wind because I find it to be so boring. Neil does a miracle here. He makes that song somehow not boring. Hmm. And the thing about it is that it's actually longer, a lot longer than the original Dylan version. He really it's much stretches. slower. Yeah, he slows it down and he stretches it out. But I guess what the song needed, man, uh, the way that he t- he turns it into this weird kind of ghostly electric ballad uh, with lots of like feedback to guitar. And Blowing it really it. crescendos at the end of the verses. Yeah, you know, I'm too many people have died. And you the know crowd when, goes nuts. <laughs> yeah, death. Yeah, right. uh, we love it when many people die. <laughs> That's not what they're cheering for, obviously. But it is so strange that Neil brings out the soul of that song so much better than Bob Dylan ever did for me. Um, that to me is actually like if you could take a song that I legitimately dislike and then turn it into something that I actually like, you have done something really special. And Neil Young does it with Blowing in the Wind. And how many deaths will it take till he knows too many people have died? The answer, my friend, is blowing in the wind. The answer is blowing.
and it was topical too because remember that tour took place during the first Gulf War. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, the war broke out while they were on tour. Um, and then the the second song or the the other song that I'll that I'll highlight off of way down in the rust bucket is Surfer Joe and Mo the Sleaze, <laughs> a, a song that I had heard probably twice in my life because I had so dismissed Reactor. Um, I, I barely even had remembered that it existed, and. Boy, it's a revelation. On this. Now it's like this really nifty, tight pop oh, rock song, right? How did that terrific. happen? It's terrific. <laughs> it's got these little backing vocals in the beginning. It's like, it's like, wait a second. And I actually had to go back to Reactor to listen to the original. And it, the pieces are actually all there, which gets to the point that we were making about how Reactor sounds like such a distracted record. Like there's no focus. There's no tightness to it because the pieces were all there originally, but they just didn't bring them together. And now they're all brought together on this yep. Rust Bucket version. It's so good. Do you have any thoughts on Well before we move on to, uh, well, I guess kind of the one that we're going to hot take all over? Yeah, not in particular. I think you guys covered it well. They're, they're, they're both uh, highly listenable live records for essentially the same reason. The band is hot. The songs are chosen well, and, and they know how to play them. Well, when you expect Neil Young to zig, Neil Young says to you, hey, it's time for me to zag. And that's exactly what happens next, because coming off this great high of all these albums with Crazy Horse, the great concert tour and all that, and Weld, what does he do? You know what? Everyone's been asking me for the last 30 years to redo Harvest, so I guess I'm going to redo Hardest. He literally reassembles the Stray Gators from 1972. He goes to Nashville, and he records an album that couldn't be more clear about what its intent is. You, You liked Harvest? Well, here's Harvest Moon. This is one of this is his biggest selling album of the last forty years. It's a bigger seller than either um, Ragged Glory or Freedom. So Neil obviously knew what it was he was doing. He's no fool. Um, this was a huge hit. It was played everywhere. I don't really like it at all. I think it's actually kind of lame. And I think the way I usually try to describe my problem with this this album is that. On Harvest, all of these songs, with the exception of like Words, which is a long kind of hard rocking jam, uh, their songs were like two and a half, three minutes long, three and a half minutes. On Harvest, I don't think there's a like almost every song is about five minutes long. They're longer, they're sort of more flaccid. 
They don't have the same kind of tightness or tension. They don't have the same hooks. It's all very pretty music. I don't think there's anything on it that's offensive, not even that 11-minute long thing that ends it. Um, but I, you know, the, the, the title track is the only thing that stands out to me. I really like the title song, Harvest Moon. I think it's a very beautiful song. Just like children sleeping, we could dream this night away. But there's a full moon rising. Let's go. itself is too long but then i look at stuff like um you and me and i'm like that, that is such an old man rewrite it's like pathetically obvious <laughs> uh, you like the, 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 the even includes the words old man in it right all right and it has the same chords the same chords and chord changes and then there's like the war of man it sounds like it's going back all over again so this one has never been a favorite of mine and of course that puts me in a minority because this is one of neil's most popular latter-day albums thinking of you and me making love beneath the tree and now I wonder could it be think about the times we had some were good and some were bad guitar fighting the TV I was thinking Well, we'll be at a minority on the show because this is almost certainly the album I was most disappointed by um, when listening through the catalog. Uh, I mean, they've won a bunch of awards, very well thought of. It's, it's you know, for for a casual Neil Young fan, you probably have a few albums. You know, you think about Harvest and you think about Freedom, and you probably think about Harvest Moon. I mean, it just has this reputation to it, and I was. Highly disappointed. Um, Jeff mentioned some of my critiques. Yes, the songs are too long. They're not really, they're not taught. They're not focused. And to me, a lot of the tracks are just sonically <coughs> flat. Um, it's it's not quite, uh, it's, it's not quite uh, recorded as well as I think some of the other country attempts of Neil Young through his career. None of the songs really stick with me. Um, and there's an homage to his dead dog, old king. Uh, such a, <laughs> I, I actually actually kind of like that. Song. Yeah. Such a woman is kind of this, this kind of trite arrangement. Um, 
The one song I, Jeff mentioned, uh, War of Man, I do kind of like that. It kind of has an ominous mood to it. Um, the one song I knew going in here was Dreamin' Man. And Nico Case did a cover of Dreamin' Man for an album, actually an EP called Canadian Amp uh, some years ago. I, I like her version better. There's a, uh, um, you know, Ben Keith's here and Tim Drummond. The, the people are here. The, the, the pieces should be in place. And yet it leaves me very cold. Uh, it's not a bad album, but it's certainly to me, I mean, this is the opposite of trans where I came into trans with very, very low expectations. And I, I come away impressed. And here I came in with high expectations and I was left unimpressed by and large by Harvest Moon. take this hot take and I'll turn up the heat. Um, in fact, I'll say something that may even get me in trouble. <laughs> I almost, I almost view this disc as, as an analog to Eric Clapton's unplugged, uh, from the Wait, same era. I hope you understand how much that Scott and I hate Eric Clapton's <laughs> unplugged. Well, so it's not going to get me in trouble with you guys. <laughs> all right, great. All right. We're maybe, all on the same page. Maybe here. some all listeners right. out there. So listen, it's from the same era. It's from a legacy artist that, that sands down a lot of the edges on his music, and voila, a bunch of baby boomers rediscover him, and he sells a lot of copies. Um, it's got the, the cheap nostalgia, the sort of the remember the good old days lyrics b- before we all got divorced and lost our jobs. <laughs> um, it, it reminds me of why I always hated the big chill. You know, this, this, that's a great that's a great comparison. So this this big giant ladle full of baby boomer nostalgia thrown in your face. And here's a song that you can play opposite a Jimmy Buffett song and it'll sound it won't sound out of place at all. Uh, I hate Jimmy Buffett, too, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's a reason you've been a guest on our show twice, because we kind of are vibing on the same page. here too. I get what you say, though. It just feels lazy. Like, and he was being the opposite of lazy you know, up until this point. Even when he was making like failed experiments, he was trying to do something weird. Even if it was just to you know, yeah. stick a middle finger in your face, this one just feels like totally caving in. You know, like, all right, here's the slop that you want. Buy it up, folks. Can we get it together? Can we still stand side by side?
fairness, I don't know how much you want to talk about Unplugged, but I think uh, I like Neil, Neil has basically disavowed the Unplugged record. I don't agree. I think it blows Clapton's Unplugged out of the water. I think the for me, the ranking of Unplugged records is Nirvana, Neil Young, the end. Um, it's so much. It's so much more emotionally rich than than Clapton's Unplugged. I already mentioned Transformer Man. I think that uh, Old Laughing Lady is that's my favorite version of Old Laughing Lady. I love mm-hmm. String Man. I love uh, the pump organ that yes. he uses yes. for um, like, a uh, like a hurricane. Like a hurricane. Yeah, it's, there's so many great moments on that. First of all, I want to point out that uh, you probably didn't listen to our Patreon-only worst covers uh, episode, but but Scott had the brilliant idea to cite as one of his worst ever cover songs Eric Clapton covering his own Layla, uh, which I agree with. <laughs> that, that like you know, can an artist desecrate his own composition? Yes, yes Eric yes. Clapton. Yeah. Eric Clapton did it. <laughs> so like we have never liked that album. And uh, I actually do. I like I like Neil Young's Unplugged. This is as I said to you guys in the in the you know our pre-show notes. Like he was born for the format. He's always been playing acoustic sets. He's been doing it as far back as 1968. So what I appreciate about this is that he goes for the really non-obvious choices. He'll throw out like you know it's Transformer Man. It's Look Out for My Love. These are songs that weren't being played. World on a the string. Old, world on a string done with the acoustic band that works really well actually um and i think i agree with you jeff that the highlight is him playing the pump organ um which is an instrument that he would return to when he was playing with pearl jam actually you know in a couple a couple of years from now he kind of developed an affection for it but that version of like a hurricane is actually really compelling uh there's just something about it being stripped to its barest essentials and just the chords that uh you know i i I you know, mentioned that I wasn't a huge fan of the original studio recording on our second episode. I actually prefer this version to that one. Once I thought I saw you in a crowded hazy bar Dancing on the light from star to star So Unplugged is like never going to be anyone's idea of a truly essential Neil Young live album or, or you know, in his entire discography, but I get a lot of satisfaction out of it myself. I think you guys handled Unplugged pretty well. I, I, I do like the acoustic world on a string. Uh, yes, the pump organ on Like a Hurricane is a highlight there. Again, it's one of those instances, too, where he's been playing acoustic 
you know, essentially for what, a third, uh, you know, of his career. And so he he was able to sort of steer away from some of the more obvious, you know, if you're going to do an acoustic song. There's no why old do man or yeah. heart of gold or right. anything like that, right. Although right. My, my main critique that I wrote down was there's too much Harvest Moon, but <laughs> it makes it makes sense, right? For, from, right? from a chronology standpoint, that's the big album. That was just released. You're going to have some acoustic Harvest Moon on there. I, I wish those songs were different. Uh, but by and large, it, it's a fine album. Well, the thing that makes me feel very, very, you know, happy about this part of Neil's career is that if you had thought like, uh oh, he's gone commercial, it's you know going to be some sort of gloopy, glurgy soft rock, he doesn't do that. In fact, he does another big left swerve. And this, ah, uh, God, I go back and forth about like, what is my favorite album from this era? Is it going to be Ragged Glory? Is it going to be Freedom? I actually think it might be the third Neil Young and Crazy Horse album of this period, and that is Sleeps with Angels. This is an album that had been recorded almost entirely prior to Kurt Cobain's suicide in 1994. And then when, of course, the news of that came through and, of course, they, the suicide note became part of the record, it was read, uh, and, you know, of course, Cobain is writing, you know, it's better to burn out than to fade away. Neil Young just, you know, felt absolutely miserable about that, as you might imagine. He's like, well, this is, you know, did this, he take this seriously? Is, is this something that inspired him to kill himself? And he felt awful about it. So he recorded a final track for that record, most of which had been recorded prior to the suicide. And the title track is what it was. It was called Sleeps with Angels. This album is great for me because it's actually a non-traditional Crazy Horse album. It's not Ragged Glory in any way. There's there's lots there's guitar jams. There's lots of like you know loud and long and sloppy fun stuff on this too, but it's actually a much weirder and more dark and arty album. There's lots of tack piano. There's lots of weird production choices like whispered vocals, ghostly vocals in the background. Sleeps with Angels being a perfect example of that. I love this record, and I know you guys don't like it as much as I do, so why don't you explain why you're wrong first, and then I'll explain why I'm right afterwards. I think you're overselling a bit my opinion. I I, um, um, I like Sleep with Angels. I, I think it's kind of this amalgam of both uh, freedom and racket glory. You, you do sort of have these these sort of the atmospheric touches of 
of freedom, these sort of dark, brooding numbers, and yet there are also these rock moments sort of pulled through from ragged glory. The one thing I really do like about Sleeps with Angels, and one of the reasons why people, even to this day, still write about it as if it was written entirely in response to Kurt Cobain's suicide, is that it does, in many ways, recapture sort of the ethos of tonight's the night, right? It sounds, by and large, like a bunch of guys. You could picture it being made by a bunch of guys who are, who are having a good time, who are hanging out on the back porch, who are recording right, right into a studio in the aftermath of something. I, I, I feel that that comes through. So in that way, it sort of recaptures that feeling of tonight's the night. loud abrasive guitars but there is a lot of moodiness to this record that i like a lot and to my ear a lot of these songs come in pairs um you know my heart and a dream that can last bookend this album they both feature the, you know, this very prominent tack piano uh, uh there are west western hero and what train of love a very similar uh melody same thing with um, Trans Am and Drive By, I think, have very similar melodies. There's like this pairing up of a lot of songs on Sleeps with Angels, but uh, a lot of it works really well. Uh, and Change Your Mind, which is that's right there song. in the middle, like 15 minutes, that's one. And you guys know, I think you know, you know, I, 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 I don't want to say have an aversion, but if I'm going to recommend a 15 minute song for you, it's really got to be one. <laughs> <laughs> worth that time. Change Your Mind really is. Change Your Mind is what a wonderful of, chorus, too. Yeah. It goes, it's so dark in, in the verses, and then it goes into this beautiful, sort of bright, sunshiny, poppy uh, chorus that I love. When you get weak and you need to test your will Life's complete But there's something
it's one of my favorites from this era and that 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 guitar part that sort of just slithers and snakes all over from Neil Young is really great. And then I just mentioned, yeah, Neil Young, as I think Jeff said earlier, contains multitudes. You have Neil, Neil songs about love and longing and tributes to, to you know, ex-bandmates and you songs about salmon spawning. And here, of course, you have the song about <laughs> Neil Young buying something at the store and it being a piece of crap. And that's <laughs> the song. Uh, and it's a great song, too. I love it. It's so punky. It's, it's like one of the very few songs that has like the ragged glory, crazy or shit. This piece of crap. <laughs> it's just all he sings about. It's like it's just like a sort of an everyday mundane complaint that we all have. Although, although very, it, very non-green, at least, right. you know, it's how, sci- how science changes. Uh, tried to save the trees, bought a plastic bag. The bottom fell out. It was a piece of crap. You know, you would dream of buying a plastic bag these days. But back in 94, you know, who knew better? I, I don't think it's... I, I like Freedom, as I, I've already staked out my claim. I think Freedom is the is the best album of this era. Sleepless Angels is just, just a couple of steps behind. And, and I, I do like the, again, the moodiness, the feel of a lot of these tracks works well for me. Uh, Piece of Crap is definitely fun. Uh, it's got that kind of garage punk thing again that you see in Sedan Delivery and Welfare Mothers. It's, it's really in that ethos. I guess that's why I, I certainly don't, criticize this album as an artistic statement. I, I sort of go back and forth on, on, on whether I like it as, a, as something that I'm going to sit there and listen to because a lot of it is, is not that fun. It's, it's not a fun listen. It's like Tonight's the Night and on the beach. It's the kind of thing that reveals itself over several listens. Um, and that could be part of the problem is that I hadn't listened to it in a number of years. Uh, I listened to it a lot when it came out. I haven't listened to it in a while, so it it, it feels kind of new and raw again. There's definitely great moments on there. Uh, I like Prime of Life a lot.
one of the reasons that people conflated this so much with Cobain's death, even though most of it was recorded beforehand, is because a lot of these songs are ruminations on death. Yeah, there are songs, other there's, than a song called, there's a song called Prime of Life, right? Prime of I Life, mean, drive, drive By. My Heart, you know, Change Your Mind. It almost sounds like you don't have to do this. It, it, it was so easy to read those meanings into it. I remember I did when I was a kid. Sure. Uh, but it's, I mean, not, it's not all about that. Nope. It's not, but you know, it's one of those things that can take on a retrospective meaning. I, I, as I said, I think this is very close to being his best album from the era. But I understand exactly why people might disagree. It's definitely not your classic crazy horse sound. It's a lot weirder and stranger. But I like weird and strange. I like my Neil when he takes experimental chances and he does odd things. And I guess speaking of doing odd things, he does another really odd thing. Uh, adios, crazy horse. Uh, it's been nice. Had a lot of fun recording these last few albums with you. But you know who I really want to be? My new backing band? That's right. I want Pearl Jam. band Pearl Jam. You know them. Evenflow, Jeremy, Spoken Class Today, all the famous grunge stuff. Neil Young actually got Pearl Jam to record his next album with him. The album's called Mirrorball. I remember seeing this one uh, not only in the store shelves, but in all the remaindered bins as well. And, uh, <laughs> I, I get yourself that... a Mirrorball and get yourself a monster while you're at it. Yeah, exactly. Get yourself a Mirrorball, get yourself a monster. You can pick them up for a whole $4. And I think that says something about how the album was received. I want to like this album a lot. I really do because I love Pearl Jam. We've done an episode on them. They're a wonderful band. And obviously I love Neil. And yet it just doesn't work. Pearl Jam is a fantastic group, but I don't know. They're the wrong kind of group for Neil in my opinion. I don't know if it's that they're the wrong kind of group even – or if the songs weren't there, because I don't really necessarily think that the songs were there either. So this one is, to me, a failed experiment. I, I There are a couple of decent songs on it. I like Throw Your Hatred Down a lot. Mm -hmm. I think it's by far the best song. I also like Truth Be Known. But then again, you know, that's on the plus side, and it gets completely negated by like the existence of Downtown, which is maybe one of the more unforgivable and offensive uh, Neil Young songs ever. Just to me, because it sounds like ZZ Top, uh, and and I think it's about the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame as well. It's just, yeah, ooh man, what about when? Which I think is when he when he met the Pearl Jam guys because they helped induct him. But Led Zeppelin got inducted at the same time, if I'm not mistaken. And it's yeah, it's really cringeworthy. You know, he's name checking Hendrix and and hanging out with Jimmy Page, and it's just like dumb rock and roll nostalgia 
it's the kind of rock star trip that Neil's supposed to not be about. Yes. You know? <laughs> yeah. Done work. It's, 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 it's grown worthy. But I like the album a lot more than you. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I like Song X that opens it. Um, the, the priest was there with sandy hair, religion by his side. He saw his law was broken. The punishment was applied. Come on. Man. It's, it's sort of a Soundgarden lyric, but okay. Um, Act of Love, I, I think, gets a little monotonous. And, the, and the, the, he's trying to take both sides of the abortion debate, and it's kind of hackneyed. It doesn't really work. Uh, I'm the Ocean is one of my favorite That's a good tracks song, from this actually. period. That's I'm the good. Ocean really, really cooks. country i like i agree with you about throw your hatred down i think there's more on this uh, that i like than than i than, than not i Scott. disagree i think this is pretty much a whiff a bomb i uh i think pearl jam is not the right band to back neil young and that's made apparent in a lot of places here it's just big it's buzzy it's loud but in a way that somehow doesn't mesh with Neil's strengths. Um, Isn't Brendan O'Brien producing this one pretty, too? Which I think he it makes sense. He was producing Pearl Jam around that time. He's producing Pearl Jam. I think this is a Brendan O'Brien production, which, by the way, points out like Neil Young. He, he doesn't need Brendan O'Brien as a producer. That's that's not the Neil Young sound at all. <laughs> um, I, I I somewhat like Peace and Love. It's long. It's like seven minutes, but there are a pair of really nice bridge moments on peace and love it's that's the one track that eddie vetter is on right is he sings a bit with neil on that track yeah he was absent from the sessions for the most part because he was being stalked by a crazy person which actually ends up showing up in the song lucan from no code Mm. great song and Uh, yeah and the fact that um the pearl jam the name pearl jam appears nowhere on the record just factual issues and the song that uh, there's two or three songs that eddie wrote that are also not on the record they were they showed up as B-sides later on. If I'm not yeah, they, they, they came out on Pearl Jam's little Merkinball EP. Merkin I really Ball. liked them both. Yeah, yeah I, got, I Got ID, um, uh, which is you've got, it's just great. It's got a classic Neil Young guitar solo on the end of it. And it's really fun to hear Neil soloing over changes that are not Neil Young changes. Neil Young would never have written a song structured like I Got ID. And then he plays the pump organ and he sings in the background on Long Road, which is a beautiful song. And I... 
I think it's probably, I mentioned this to you guys um, in our notes, I think it's one of the most moving parts of the concert for Heroes after 9-11. Uh, was just uh, Vetter and Mike McCready uh, and, you know, Eddie sang Long Road. And there in the background in the shadows, that was Neil playing the pump organ again, just singing the backing vocals. No, no publicity, didn't need to have his face on camera or, or lit up in any way. He just did his thing, and it's just a really golden moment. The sun is setting, the sun will rise another day. Um, hey, um, hey, Speaking of, uh, you mentioned the production of Brendan O'Brien. I think this is probably the time to note that his longtime producer, David Briggs, dies about this time, mm-hmm. right after this album. And I don't think it's a coincidence that a, a lot of the albums following this uh, continue to have problems. You know, it, it, he doesn't have anybody problems. to say no anymore. Right. He doesn't have anyone to say, okay, cut that song in half or, uh, yeah, let's leave these four in the vaults. Yeah. He loses the capacity to self-edit. Right. And, of course, you know, that maybe even starts to show up immediately on Broken Arrow, which is the follow-up. He goes back to Crazy Horse. This is the last album that he does with Crazy Horse for a very long time. Um, Broken Arrow, 1996. It's a strangely slight album. It's a weirdly sequenced record. It's like the first three songs are these incredibly long jams, and I actually like all three of them. I think they're they're all pretty good. Loose Change is my favorite of the of, of the three of these. Big Time is also pretty good. Uh, but then the second half is all these little short songs, and then it ends with this weird audience bootlegged version of an old blues song, like "Baby, What Do You Want Me to Do," which you know I've been hearing since like the late '60s versions, but done by the Birds. It's not particularly distinguished. It's just strange. It seems like a very unfocused album, and uh, something again, you know, it just feels like this. And then the live album that comes after it, "The Year of the Horse." Which I pointed out to you guys when we were talking about this. I said, "Is like, is this, the, you know, is it proof that Neil Young can release a mediocre live album?" Well, because yeah, because you kind of get one on Year of the Horse. This is the last sort of hurrah for Crazy Horse for many years, and yeah, I have to say, I think it's kind of a diffident way to go out.
I, I just want to rescue Big Time from Broken Arrow. I, I was, uh, I, I thought uh, I was going to be hot taken all over the place on Broken Arrow because you know the reputation is not quite as strong as many other albums. And, I, and then Big Time, the first first three songs of this album are about twenty five minutes um, combined. They're just really long and lumbering songs, but Big Time really works. For me, I, I really, really like Big Time. Lyrically, you know, this going on a trip and sort of having this uh, this open view of art and wonder and life, and it's just a big, long jam that I think works and holds together really well. And, and no, that, that that to me, that's the best part of the album by far. The other jams are okay. I don't think either are as good as Big Time. And Scattered's okay on side two. I think um, Slip Away is actually a really nice song, but yeah, you know, horses for courses. There's just a lot of winding solos and sort of melodies that drift off into some place mm-hmm. that doesn't make sense with the rest of the record. My hopes were very high after hearing Big Time, which again I'll defend, but the rest of it does and hold together for me. Jeff? I'm pretty much with Scott on this one. Uh, I don't have a lot to say about it. I don't think it's I, I don't think it's very strong. Um, in fact, I think it's one of the weaker Crazy Horse albums. Certainly, certainly since Reactor, it's the it's the weakest thing they did since Reactor. Um, and I, I was I was glad to see them move on from this. So yeah, Year of the Horse is the live album that comes out, of, out around this time, and you really don't have to say anything about it. I'll just point out that first of all, it's directed by Jim Jarmusch. Neil Young did the soundtrack for a Jim Jarmusch film called Dead Man. We didn't discuss it because it's not good. Uh, film isn't good either, by the way. Johnny Depp, it is most inscrutable. Uh, don't, you know, it's, it's, I like a lot of Jim Jarmusch films, actually, because he's, he's a, a filmmaker that a lot of people don't have much time for. But he has an ability to make Crazy Horse look really boring, uh, which is what happens on the Year of the Horse documentary film. Uh, there's really never been a great Neil Young film going all the way back to Journey Through the Past. It's just something about him that seems utterly resistant to the cinematic format. I don't know why, it just is. Um, what happens next, though, is interesting because this is an album that I was extremely disappointed by at the time. I think actually before this, there was a Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young reunion album called Looking Forward, about which the less said the better. Um, but then, the f- just a four-year layoff for Neil. This is important. You know, uh, Broken Arrows in 96, and uh, he doesn't come out with his next release until, like, it's 99 or 2000. It's called Silver and Gold. And I remember being super excited about this because I was in college at that point, and I was really looking forward to the new Neil Young album. I'd already become a huge fan of his. And then I picked this one up, and it's just a very kind of quiet, acoustic, light album. And it left a bitter taste in my mouth for some reason when I was 19 years old. I go back to it now when I'm 40 years old and I listen to it and I think, hey, this is actually secretly a really fantastic record. And in fact, probably one of his more underrated records of all time. So if there's any one record that I've come around on in a major way during the process of doing these shows, I'd say it's Silver and Gold. I think this is actually really great. I wanted to know what you guys thought of it. Go 
So impressed by silver and gold in uh, essentially every way that um, you Harvest weren't Moon, by Harvest Moon. Yes, <laughs> in, in every way that Harvest Moon didn't come together for me, silver and gold does. Uh, and we start with again, it's not necessarily shorts, great and long is terrible, but but it's ten songs, thirty nine minutes. It's it's right away. It's more focused. Uh, it's 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 tighter. The band is Ben Keith. It's Duck Dunn on bass. Jim Keltner on drums. That's, I mean, come on. That's a, a crack band. Emily Harris, Linda Ronstadt do backing vocals. This is this is sprightly. This is warm and inviting. It's it's recorded very well. I, I, it sounds better than Harvest Moon did. Uh, I, I think it's got it's a just, spring in its step. It's yes, got vigor, yes, you know? Yes. I, I think it's his best kind of folk country collection since Harvest Moon. And it's, um, I have these, you know, this collection, this list in my mind, Saturday morning albums, uh, the Jayhawk 7 album called Rainy Day Music, which to me is like the essential Saturday morning album. Silver and Gold, very much a Saturday morning album. Um, it's good to, you know, you know you're gonna vacuum around the house. Sure, Silver and Gold. Uh, you're to do some painting. Yeah, Silver and Gold. It'll work. It'll work for you. The Good to See You starts things off very well. It's uh, it's it's what two minutes and forty nine seconds or something. It's a great opener for the album. Uh, there's one called uh, Distant Camera that's very very good. The Great Divide. This that might be the, the best the band sounds on this album on the Great Divide. The, the drums pop, the bass thumps, the pedal steel, you know, those pedal steel peels just sound fantastic. On the horses of the ends with this longer track called Razor Love, which I think is outstanding, gorgeous melody on Razor Love. A lot of sort of big picture lyrics on here too, like higher powers guiding you through the troubles of life. Um, but it all it all really does work for me. Uh, the one thing keeping this from sort of legendary level for me is there's no there's no standout knockout uh, track right there's no absolutely legendary gotta hear this one thing track on here but there's no weak tracks either uh it's just a really solid it's solid is damning with faint praise it's better every track is solid but the album as a whole is really great i've got a real soft spot for this record because 
this was when I was probably on my first or second job. And when this came out, the computers suddenly all had CD-ROM drives. <laughs> listen to a CD while you worked. And this just sat on my desk for months. I probably listened to it. Well, I probably listened to this once a day for six months. Um, and it, I, I, again, I don't want to, I don't want to damn it with faint praise. It, it works well as background music, but if you sit there and listen to it, it does reveal so much more, um, especially on side two. Uh, good to see you. Daddy went walking Buffalo Springfield again. Eh, kind of throwaway tracks. I, I like the melodies. Good to see you, but it's hard to take it that seriously because the, the opening lyrics are good to see you. Good to see you. Good to see you again. Good to see your face, my friend. It's good to see you. It's a far deeper lyric than the old homestead or ambulance blues. <laughs> but then, yeah, when you when you flip over to, to side two, the proverbial side two anyway, Great Divide, Horseshoe Man, Red Sun, Distant Camera, Razor, Razor Love, Without Rings, those are just solid one after the other. I agree with Scott. Razor Love is one of my favorite late period songs uh, that, that he's done. I really, really love it. I got faith in you It's a razor love That cuts clean through oh. I got faith in you It's a razor love That cuts clean I saw it played live once. It came off well live. He played it on Saturday Night Live, too, which was really bizarre. I can't imagine why they invited him on to promote this album, but there you go. I think they were going to recreate the energy of uh, rocking in the free world. They, nah. that, that they did not. Um, but, yes, I think this is a really solid work. Much, much, much more satisfying than Harvest Moon. I actually, you know, you dismiss some of the songs on the first side. I wouldn't. I love Silver and Gold, but I tell you what I really love is Buffalo Springfield again. <laughs> I mean, of course, I'm the Buffalo Springfield fan on this show, right? Of course, I, I was the one who was really standing up for them in our first episode. But I just, the, the lyric is just so, like, sweetly, warmly nostalgic. You know, like, I used to play in a rock and roll band, but... But they broke up. Yeah, we were young and you were wild and it ate us up. Now, I'm not saying who was right or wrong, which is kind of almost reminds me of that great Monty Python and the Holy Grail joke where Sir Lancelot like murders a bunch of people in the castle. And then the father who wants him to marry his daughter is like, well, let's not start arguing about who killed who. You know, Neil was wrong. <laughs> Neil kept quitting that band. <laughs> Neil is the reason that band broke up. All right. Now, I'm not saying who was right or wrong. Uh, I was wrong. Uh, but uh, I love it. I love that the fact that they throw in that little Buffalo Springfield. There's a classic little Buffalo Springfield style acoustic guitar riff at the turnaround of every verse. It sounds, eh, for all the world, like it could come out straight out of 1966 or 67. It's such a, like, he was obviously like trying to write something that would sound like a classic Springfield riff, and he did it. It's a great song. Looking out on a big green lawn, girls and boys. 
guys have already mentioned the stuff on the second side, which is great. You know, the, the Great Divide, I think, and Distant Camera are the other two true highlights. But again, I agree with all you guys that, man, coming back to this one is just a, a really wonderful surprise for me. It's such a warm and inviting album. And, you know, I guess he, he still has that streak that at the end of the decade, you know, no matter how weird or, or off the rails he may have been getting, he pulls it all together. Because this is a fantastic way to go out in the 90s and, and start the 2000s. Um, he also does this live album, kind of a quickie live album that comes out afterwards. I don't really know if there's much we even need to say about it. It's Road Rock, Volume 1. It does have a really long live version of Words Between the Lines of Age. Is that where you had happened to see it live, Jeff? You said that you would have seen him play this one on the road. Yeah, it was in New Jersey, I think. Um, was it Was it in 2000? Was it during that tour? Yeah, and and they did do words, and that was the, the, the whole set was great, but that was really the highlight because he so seldom played that live. And it was the band with, uh, with I want to say it was Duck Dunn, Spooner Oldham, uh, Ralph Molina might have still been on drums. So I mean, it was kind of a, a mishmash band, but it was solid. It's it, it, it's a fun enough album. They don't have like a lot of there, there are a lot of songs that haven't been like released on live performances before. Hey, if you want to hear yep. 18 minutes of Cowgirl in the Sand, this is the place to go for it. But it's not, it's not it's not behind open that show. Yeah, and she also sings, I believe, on All Along the Watchtower at the yep. end of the show. So that's that, it, it's a pretty pretty decent cover, but it's not really that important. Of course, what happens then? Uh, well, 9-11 happens. I think everybody remembers that. Well, unless you're a really, really young listener to Political Beats, everyone remembers that. Um, and, of course, Neil Young responds to that. And everybody, unfortunately, also remembers. Let's roll. I know I said I love you. I know you know it's true. But I'm not sure I You know, what can you say about the song Let's Roll? His heart was in the right place. I mean, I don't, you know, I'm not going to knock him for like, you know, like wanting to have some sort of like, you know, emotional and inspirational reaction to a really terrible moment in American history. But I don't like the song. And the album that it comes from is also a disappointment to me. But it's a disappointment to me because I feel like it really could have been that much, a lot better than it is. I'm talking about Are You Passionate? Comes out in 2002. Um this is a record that he has. He has Booker T and the MGs backing him. He has Booker T playing keyboards. He has Duck Dunn on bass. He has one of the best bands that he will ever play with. And they groove. They cook on this music. It's, it's friggin' MGs. They're a fantastic band. And yet the music, the songs themselves are almost all really kind of generic. They're not really interesting. They're really boring. The best song on this one is Quit. I love Quit. Quit, Don't Say You Love Me. That's the best song. Mm -hmm. And even that is like two minutes too long. It's six minutes long. Every song on this record is like over five minutes practically. You know, some of them are nine minutes, eight minutes. Most of them are five, six minutes long. He's losing that ability to edit himself. You could have taken every single song on this record, hacked two minutes out of it. You'd have a record that instead of being like 65 minutes long was like 45 minutes long. 
and you'd have a good record. You'd have a record I could really like defend, you know, and say like this is super underrated. But it's not underrated. It's a disappointment simply because this is the point, as we're going to talk about, where he stops being able to edit himself. I think there's only two songs here that I, and we're getting to a point where you need to pick and choose songs off of a lot of these albums. Where yeah. the, the, whole, the whole thing isn't worth your time. There's songs that might belong on a, on a mix or, or, a, or a playlist that you're going to do. One of those is a crazy horse throwaway called Going Home, which I think is decent. Uh, just a, a, a solid straight ahead chugging rock track. And yeah, then it's I a, like li- it's a live of- song, yeah. Yeah, I like the title track as well. It's a it's a slow, uh, soulful, uh, plaintive song uh, where the, the guitar line echoes the melody. He's got the MGs backing him. I, I enjoy that one from time to time. But that's really about it. Once I was a soldier, I was fighting in the sky. Yes, I guess I'm the guy that's going to defend Let's Roll a little bit. Okay. Lyrically, it's not outstanding. It's a little over the top, although in over the top times, I suppose. But I like that groove. I really do. That 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 dark brooding blues rock uh, groove they get in. Uh, I mean, you can't beat this band. It's yeah, just the thing. it's a great, it's the best band he's ever played with. In my so opinion. I I do like that, but I it's I agree with Jeff. It's missed opportunity, and I don't know when when I hear these songs. I keep thinking they're either 10 to 15% slower than they should be or 10 to 15% <laughs> faster than they should be. Um, you don't really get that really high octane Booker T and the MGs, and you don't sort of get that slow 
green onions kind of cooking right like the the the, 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 you can see the bacon grease frying on the grill kind of like yeah you don't get either of that it's 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 all like in between Mm -hmm. and um i think that's i mean that's that's my biggest problem uh the the band sounds pretty good at times um and and the, the, the the songs are all right but i i that tempo for so many tracks on this album uh just seems off to me for mm-hmm. whatever reason quit i agree with uh, you jeff that that's almost certainly the best song of this album there's a uh, be with you there's a nice ascending guitar riff in the chorus i like a lot and i do i do like uh let's roll for various reasons but uh but yeah missed missed opportunity is probably the best way to to sum up are you passionate well we go from a disappointing album to an album that actually offends me now, believe it or not, when I was a younger man, I actually thought to myself, I had this vague memory in my head for a record I hadn't listened to for like 20 years or so, you know, 15 years, that, that Greendale was actually supposed to be a good album. And I went back and I dug it up for the first time in 15 years when we were doing this show, part three, prepping for this. And this album actually makes me want to twist my own head off, yank it off my shoulders, and boot it like a soccer ball out the window. That's how frustrating Greendale is to me. We've talked about Neil Young's inability to edit himself, his lengthiness. This is an album where every single song is five minutes or more, and there are four songs that are ten minutes long. And why are they ten minutes long? It's not because they've got all sorts of interesting, different, like musical bits that are thrown in. No, it's ten minutes long because this is supposed to be like a stage play. And he needs to put all the narration in there so that the actors that are playing behind him and the band can do their thing on stage. I just, this actually, this is the rare album that angers me, man. Falling from Above, the first song on this album is a perfect example of the problem. That would be a really good, nice, tight, three-minute pop song. The riff is there, it's solid. But no, because we have to have 15 friggin' verses. The thing goes to seven and a half minutes long. Grandpa said your cousin Jed sitting on the porch. I won't retire, but I might retread. Seem like that guy singing this song. He's been doing it for a long time. Is there anything you know that he ain't said? Sing a song for freedom Sing a song for love Sing a song for depressed angels Falling from above And by the time it gets there, you you again, I'm cradling my head in my hands. It's like so repetitive. <laughs> it just doesn't stop. I'm actually pleading like on a song like Carmichael or Grandpa's Interview. She's just like, I'm screaming, end, please, end. I don't feel that way about long Neil Young jams. I'm listening to this guy play Tonight's the Night for 35 minutes and enjoying myself. But on this stuff, it's just so prosaic. There's just so much chatter. I don't know if you guys feel differently than me about Greendale, but this is one of his biggest clunkers ever. No, I like it. There you go. (laughs) There There you go. go. I love it. Different opinions on political beats. You let me let me preface that by saying you are not wrong on your criticisms. 
these songs are almost all too long. That that doesn't mean I don't enjoy them. Um, I, I I think there's a lot here. There's a lot that I like. Falling from above, I really enjoy. Um, Devil's Sidewalk, which is sort of a cool blues shuffle, um, played really sloppily, as that's, you like to do. That's the one I uh, do, like, Devil's Sidewalk. It's the Devil's Sidewalk. It's the Devil's Door. I try to avoid it. Said the captain of the shore. There's a garden growing. And a million. And then the kind of the uh, the the apotheosis of the whole story, Sun Green toward the end. That song's a banger. I I dig it. I always dig it. I don't care that it goes on for twelve minutes and the FBI agent shoots the cat and everything else. <laughs> the plot of this thing is totally inscrutable. It's, well, it was as, like supposed as, to be his, his version of Our Town by Thornton Wilder, I, I think, right? With, yeah. with, with as with every rock opera, the plot sort of goes off the rails. It's a small <laughs> town. It's a it's a uh, small town family in Northern California. They're on a ranch. Then the devil shows up and tries to make some mischief. The the dad as gets, the devil will do. I as mean, the devil know. will do. The dad gets killed in a traffic stop when things go wrong with the officer. And then the daughter uses this to become an environmental activist. That's her <laughs> her inspiration. It's a very it's, Neil Young sort of plot. <laughs> it is. It's 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 a mess. And as I as I teased last time, I saw this show at Jones Beach, and this was the first. <clears throat> it was very much a tonight's the night kind of experience, um, and it was the, in the infancy of the internet uh, set list days, where you could go on Setlist FM and see the set lists. Ooh, what's what's he playing these days? And you look at the first twelve songs, <laughs> and what the hell is this? I've never heard of any of these songs. And then the twelve so then, songs are actually eighty-five minutes long too. <laughs> That's the right, thing. right. So you're in a the the one moment I remember is is it's in between songs and you know they've got to get it's a it's a stage production. There's a set. There's actors who are lip syncing the, the the lyrics as he's singing them. Um, and so there's a lot of stuff going on between songs, and he's doing sort of the uh, the the narrative. He's explaining some of the narrative structure. And at one point, some guy stands up and goes, everybody knows Greendale is nowhere. <laughs> Did it get a reaction but, out of him? Well, but then, then there were the defenders where a couple guys were like, you do what you got to do, Neil. We're with you. But it's, you know, he's certainly no stranger to, to audience reactions like this. Uh, <laughs> but I will admit, to this day, I still put this album on every now and then and give it a spin. And there's 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 some joy in there, but your mileage may vary. It's you know what you know maybe I come back to it uh, five years from now and I'll suddenly like it again. I remember liking it in two thousand and five, and then I just came back to it last week, and I'm like, oh god, oh god, enough of this crap, you know. But and he did a companion acoustic release live in Ireland, where he does all these songs solo acoustic, and they're just as freaking long. 
<laughs> without the band behind him. Oh God! Okay, so if you think you were tortured with with the whole band behind him making a lot of noise, wait till you hear never return. Minutes yeah, of, yeah, don't of, return of, to Greendale. <laughs> yeah. How about you, Scott? I don't have too much to add other than um, I, I am, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm siding with original Jeff on this case. Um, it is a really difficult album to try to put your arms around. <laughs> you have no idea what most of it means. Uh, the songs turn into these long, hypnotic kind of grooves that don't necessarily work as well as they could or should based on what we know of Neil Young's uh, career. Uh, Devil Sidewalk is the one song that I sort of pull from here. There's one called Bandit I think is all right. But uh, this is this is really long and complicated. And uh, especially for an artist with so much to offer, I I'm not recommending Greendale. I can actually, however, at least strongly recommend his follow-up to Greendale. This one is a wonderful breath of fresh air after the ponderousness of Greendale, and that's Prairie Wind. I just want to thank you for all the things you've done I've been thinking about you I just want to send to you I mean, the story they say about this album, I don't know how true it really is, is that he'd had an aneurysm. Uh, and uh, so after his aneurysm, he had surgery on it. And so maybe he was like considering his mortality, writing songs about that. But I just think this is a huge breath of fresh air. It's back to the acoustic folkish based approach but it's not an entirely like, kind of folk album it's not quite like silver and gold there's a lot of electric guitar here in the background uh but he's got a light touch and it has this weird gimmick which i only noticed you know by going through the neil young archives website which is that this song this album is literally just uh the track listing is done in recording order every single song that he recorded in the order it was recorded just goes on the album from number one to number 12 or number 10 um and you might think well does that betray sort of lack of commitment to a conceptual you know organization or anything like that i don't think it matters i don't think it shows up because when god made me is a great end way to end the album and the first three tracks in particular the painter no wonder and falling off the face of the earth are all three of them fantastic clever interesting songs each of them has a little pop hook no wonder uh, in particular just keeps on throwing in a little trick here a little twist there add some more you know some more music add some voices and then uh, by the time it's over it's not just a mildly interesting song it's a it's <clears throat> a really memorable one i think the best song on this one uh, for sure is this old guitar which I love because it's it's just him sort of quietly sitting there talking about how you know this guitar is here before I was here and it'll be here after I'm gone. 
and I think he's actually talking about the guitar that he got from Hank Williams Sr., mm-hmm. um, <clears throat> which is like an heirloom. I think he's joked. He's like, you're not going to see this one up on the walls of the Hard Rock Cafe anytime <laughs> soon, buddy. I'm holding on to this. This old guitar ain't mine to keep. Just taking care of it now. It's been around for years and years. Just waiting in its old case. It's been up and down the country roads. It's brought a tear and a smile. Seen its share of dreams and hopes. It never went out of style. The more I play it, the better it sounds. It cries when I leave it. I really like that. There's even a stupid Elvis Presley tribute on this record. In 2005. In 2005, he does He Was the King. But I love it. I really think it's a fun song. It's just, they even have the talk back at the beginning and the ending of the song. You can tell the band's enjoying themselves. Prairie Wind is quietly one of the real growers in the later Neil Young catalog. I'm not quite as enthusiastic about it. I, 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 there, there are some parts that I, I like. There's one called Here For You, which is this very sweet, laid-back song, harmonica, very pretty bridge. Uh, you mentioned When God Made Me right at the very end. It feels a bit too precious in spots. Um, like It's a dream. Uh, I'm not sure that works terribly well. And really, I'm going to come back to this. Efficiency is just in short supply. This is uh, at least, what, the third album in a row. Are uh, you going back to Are You Passionate and then Greendale? And I think Prairie Wind we can, can throw in this, in this list where it's just s- sort of grasping around for the point at times during these songs. Half of the songs on Prairie Wind are five and a half minutes long or more. Um, it is this return to an acoustic sound um you know the title track is okay too that's one of the longer ones here but i think it works pretty well i would say you know why why is it not as good as say silver and gold again i think it's a little it's a little long in places and i think some of the songs are just a little too too precious too soft rock at times to work as well as they could I think you're absolutely right. I, I still prefer this one to Harvest Moon, but I don't think it, I don't enjoy it as much as Silver and Gold. Um, they're a little too precious. And he's playing, he's playing with Nashville session musicians. He does a show at the Ryman with uh, Jonathan Demi, filmed it for a movie. Um, so he's in Nashville. And the, the idea in Nashville is to get to the point and then get out. It's, it's the, the town of, three three and a half minute songs and if he if he did more of that i think they would have been more successful prairie wind as you said the title track which i like a lot but it's 734 i'm looking at it right now he, he could have said what he needed to say in three minutes 45 seconds and- 
there's, there's plenty on here to like, and and it, it's definitely worth a spin. Hey, don't worry. We only have 30 more Neil Young albums to cover before yeah, we're done. No. no, I mean, of course, the next one is is is, is another one of his angry political albums. And, and here's oh, the funny thing, a funny thing about living with war. I kind of like the song Let's Impeach the President. I'll admit it. Not supposed to, but it's it's kind of dopey fun. This is, of course, his angry uh, anti-Iraq war album, and the monochromaticism of it does not necessarily help. Not, again, because I object to the politics and the music. I don't really care about that. It just kind of gets a little bit <clears throat> monochromatic after a while. I also don't like the fact that he completely rewrote one of his most famous songs, which is, you know, My My Hey Hey Out of the Blue. Turns it into shock and awe. It's literally the same damn melody. There's one thing I will say about this, which is that it opens with one of his greatest later period songs, and that is After the Garden. It's top-tier electric Neil Young stuff. He's not playing with Crazy Horse. This is his uh, Freedom Era band, I believe. Uh, but that is a great song, and I just kind of wish that everything else lived up to that. But instead, you know, it's just another uh, a lot of lengthy rants. songs in here i would take away i take families i like families i like looking for a leader and as i said i even like let's impeach the president but it, it's one of these records it's like forever trapped in cultural amber uh if nothing else it's just like you know wow there's 2006 midterms in musical form <laughs> i'll put this another way there's all kinds of quotes from him where he talks about the recording process and he basically says of a certain recording no that's good enough it's a polaroid it's not a retouched masterpiece don't polish it. Leave the mistakes in. But it seems like around this time he starts applying that same principle to the songwriting. Yeah. Where I'll just dash it off. And whatever it is, it's good enough. And I'll record it. And I'll release it. And what happens, happens. And and no, Neil, it's it's not good enough. Yeah, this is the guy who used to like take a song, record it four different times over four years, and then leave it in the vaults and not release it until 20 years later. You know, and now it's like I recorded this in two weeks and I just dashed it out and right. released it. 
I it, wrote it, it on the back of a cocktail napkin at brunch, and then exactly a, a, just a like week Arthur later, did. a week later, it's on the internet, ready for <laughs> human consumption. That's exactly how he released it. He streamed it live you know, to get it out there as yeah. quickly as possible. And I appreciate the spontaneity of that. But yes, yeah, you're right. Neil has always been a craftsman. He's been the guy who's almost infamous about like how like he wouldn't let something out of the vaults until he had had it exactly the way he wanted it to be, and it would maybe come out you know four years after it had been recorded, so it was just the right fit for this album that he was putting together. And then you get something like "Living with War," which has promise. There's promise on some of these songs, but yeah, it's just you know it's it's, it's so it's done so quickly that it feels so slapdash that it doesn't work. Now, this approach isn't necessarily doomed to failure. There's an album he's going to be doing in a few years that actually benefits from this kind of an approach, but I don't think it works here. Scott? This begins the year, and I had written an email to both guys as we were prepping, and like, this is the line, right? Living with War is the line for me in which I... I can't the yada, have... yada, yada, yada <laughs> era? Is that how you describe yes, it? Yes, yes. I, I essentially said, is it, can we, which of these albums are going to yada, yada our way through? An old Seinfeld joke for you guys out there. Uh, can we just sort of wave off? Is um, it seems, again, I, I'm not the Neil Young expert here, but it certainly seems as if that's the line. Living with war seems to be the line in which uh, quality control uh, and the ability to edit and all those things become extremely spotty. And, and there's not... It's not to say there aren't some moments to come uh, on which I have thoughts and notes and want to recommend some things, but it does begin the era in which, um, you know, as, as I was getting to this point of listening through the catalog, it just nothing really was able to, to hook me or grab me and say, this is a reason to pay attention to this album. There's so much coming out very quickly, too, uh, along these uh, in these years. Well, I mean, I, I, yeah, that's the thing. His, his, his release pace is, is brutal. It's relentless. He's got an album a year practically, and you know, you know, everybody gets old, man. You know, you can't be as productive as you used to be, especially if you're not exercising quality control. You're talking about albums you want to yada yada away. Well, the next one, actually, the next two are ones that I would hand wave away as being really not that exciting. For me, the, the first one there is Chrome Dreams Two. This mm. is named after an album. Chrome Dreams 2. What about Chrome Dreams 1? Well, there is no Chrome Dreams 1. It never came out. It was another one of those lost albums we discussed on part two of our show. Uh, and this has nothing to do with that. It doesn't have any songs from those sessions. It doesn't include any of them. Uh, but it does include some old, older songs. Beautiful Bluebird, which opens the album, actually dates from the old ways days, uh, 1983. It's kind of nice there. Don't much care for it here. Um, and then it actually just includes the original 1988 studio take of Ordinary People, which might make you excited. It's 18 minutes long. It's a big epic. But, man, I understand why they didn't release it back then, because I do not like the studio version. It doesn't have anything like the balls and the excitement uh, uh, and the vividness that the live recording on Blue Note Cafe ha has. Instead, it has those weird, slick keyboards that, that sound so 80s, and they, say, um, they pretty much emasculate the song. There's not a lot on this record that I much care for. I like Boxcar. I like Boxcar. It's got a, got a bit of an angular spare sound to it that works, kind of an old for the turnstile sound. And Spirit Road, I think, is a nice, you know, mm -hmm. lengthy rocker with some classic Neil Young guitar. But, man, I, the rest of this, I just sort of be like, well, man, I don't know. Even yeah. the cover is ugly.
This is one I spot a few times, and Jeff has some thoughts too. One of the notes I made here is this is the uh, time, at least I note, that his touch really leaves him on some of the mid-tempo to slow stuff. Um, you know, he, he's had a lot of success with the, I mean, with Harvest and and Hack Silver and Gold and, and those sort of just mid-tempo slower songs. I, I don't think he pulls them off really well on Chrome Dreams too. There's a couple of neat, Jeff mentioned Spirit Road. I don't mind kind of a lazy, loping country of Ever After on this album. Uh, and Boxcar too uh, has this neat little groove. Uh, so there are some winning moments on Chrome Dreams too, but I think on the whole that the craftsmanship uh, suffers a bit from perhaps the pace, perhaps the lack of uh, his trusted producer who had been gone for a few years at this point, that this album doesn't stick together for me in any real way. No. Uh, Spirit Road is is the takeaway here for me. It's if you have a a mix that you like to run to or work out to, you should put Spirit Road on there. It'll it'll put a spring in your step. Uh, but uh, apart from that, this is this is not an essential album. Which is a fork in the road. And again, this is one that I did not give a bunch of spins to. I know Jeff did. At least it's short. (laughs) Well, there's a there's a there's a conceptual conceit here, right? About his car. All about Neil's car, his electric car. So Neil's favorite, you know, his beloved Lincoln Continental. He had it retooled and and turned into an eco-friendly, all-electric, renewable energy car. And then, of course, the joke is is that about like a year after the release of this album, it it caught on fire and burned down his barn and caused millions of dollars in property damage. I don't know. I guess I shouldn't laugh at that, but there's a lesson in there somewhere, I guess. Uh, But it's, again, I'm actually not lying when I say, boy, brevity is a real virtue for, for all artists. This is a constant theme I return to on the show. This is like, what, 34, 35 minutes? Great. And, you know, the songs are kind of simple and quick and fun and light, and that is good, too. But, again, they aren't particularly memorable. I like Fuel Line, which, again, guess what it's about? It's about a car. And then there's a song that isn't really about a car, which is called Just Singing a Song. I really like that. Uh, You know, just the idea that just singing a song won't change the world. It's a good line. 
But the rest of the album is rather generic with one exception, and I must, must note the title track, Fork in the Road, uh, has got one really funny line on it that makes me laugh every single time. And you, you have to hear Neil deliver it, so we'll drop the clip in, where he talks about how, like, I'm a big rock star. My sales have tanked, but I still got you. Thanks. It's the way he says thanks, man. You got to hear it. It's so droll. It's so witty. It's, it's just a flash of the old Neil Young humor. I'm a big rock star. My sales have tanked. I still got you. But that leads us to a really interesting album, a late career album, which Neil Young produced with Daniel Lanois, who uh, has worked with a whole bunch of uh, older rock and roll artists to sort of uh, find new ways to to produce music. Uh, U2 and, and many others have worked with him. And this is a, an album called Lenoise, which is a take on Daniel Lenoir's name. I, I actually always call it Lenoir yeah. in my mind. I don't know if that's <laughs> how you're supposed to pronounce noise in French. But this, is, I mean, if there's a lesson here, it's if you've been around for at this point, what, 35, 40 years, do something different, do something you haven't done before, see what happens. And uh, this, is, this is an album that, that is essentially just Neil Young along with the production techniques of Daniel Lenoir. And so there's a lot of effects. There's echo and roar and there's resonating sound. And there's the looping use. vocals, too, in the background. Yeah, I mean, it's yeah, the use but of, it, it's just him. There's no drums. There's no bass. Right. It is just Neil. And the use of the of space and ambiance and, uh, and the environment around him. And there's some interesting stuff on here. Uh, um, the guitar sound they get, and there's a technical explanation for how that they got the, the sound. But Neil Young really dug it, and and I like it a lot. You know, it sounds like this, like a bazooka on a song like "Walk with Me." It's real buzzy and loud on a, on a song like "Angry World," which is very very good. There are one or two places here where they strip down, and it's more 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 acoustic, more straightforward. But there's a lot of just loud Neil with guitar and Daniel Lanois doing what he does behind the scenes with effects and echo. And it's interesting. And I like listening to this. And again, at this point of his career, uh, he could have done Chrome Dreams 3, I suppose. Uh, instead, we, we get something that, that uh, 
that that proves perhaps there's something left in the tank that proves he's he's always willing to look for uh, new partners and new ways to get his music across i i like this album i'm almost surprised it took him this long to do an album like this like why hadn't there ever been like neil young solo electric as opposed to neil young yeah. solo acoustic up until what 2008 or whenever this album came out because i i think this is a real success i think if you really need to boil down like what the, the post 2000 neil young career like what are the records that you need to get i think you need to get prairie wind i like that one a lot i think you need to get Lenoise. i think you get need to get psychedelic pill this is what we'll be talking about next uh but this album is just really great and simple and in bone simple but it's not simple because again lanois production totally changes what like neil young sitting in a room playing an electric guitar is going to sound like you know now it's just like crashing waves of feedback and echoed sonics and again there's like vocal loops going throughout the entire thing it's a really fascinating production and again it's a brisk album too it doesn't drag on this is like a 40 minute record it it, it says its piece and it gets out of town and all yep. the songs are short and and you know, they're disciplined here there's discipline on this record ironically enough that you don't get throughout a lot of the other stuff during this era Too. Or did you just pass on through? You didn't see me in Toronto when I first tried out some hash. Spoke through a pen and I do it again, but I didn't have the cash. I didn't have. Thirty-eight minutes, eight songs. Nearly all of them are solid. The production is great. Everything comes together finally for the first time in who knows how long. And I think what's most telling about this is to 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 prep for the show. I put it on on Spotify, and my first thought was, "Wow, I got to get this on vinyl." Uh, it's just <laughs> a giant wall of sound, like reverb fed into reverb, fed into reverb again reflecting back and forth it's it's just a treat to listen to Patience 
is. And, and, and the songs are good too. Hitchhiker, of course, is the one that I had forgotten that he'd re-recorded. Um, that's, of course, all the way back from 76. We talked about it on our previous episode. But I think Walk With Me is an amazing song. It's a song that opens the record. Um, I, as I said, I, I would happily listen to more solo Neil Young jamming on an electric guitar alone with Daniel Lanois twiddling the dials. I don't know if I would listen to them doing Americana, however. Maybe he just needed another Canadian to work with, but yeah. not, on a, not on a record called Americana. Yeah, so this brings us to uh, Neil's big reunion with Crazy Horse, so we thought at least. Um, yes, but they're reuniting to do what? <laughs> yep, they're playing standards. They're playing American standards from old Susanna to Gallows Pole. You remember the Led Zeppelin song, Gallows Pole. I guess that's sort of an Anglo-American standard. Um, and uh, then, of course, they also include Get a Job, which I love Neil for doing because, you know, he says that's, that's an American standard if you ask me, which, you know, get a job, which, you know, I respect that. He's got a point in a way. Uh, this is kind of a weird footnote of an album, but I, I secretly enjoy it. I can't in good conscience recommend it to anyone else jeff what do you think of this one i think the the i don't uh the the pick on this for me is uh jesus's chariot which is otherwise known as she'll be coming around the mountain uh just banging tom tom drums and this huge huge wailing guitar uh you've never heard the uh the the, a nursery rhyme quite like this diallo's pole's okay oh susanna's okay but again this is it's almost purely a novelty record it is a novelty record, but I'll tell you what isn't a novelty record, and what, in my opinion, is the last truly great Neil Young album to date is also the longest Neil Young album. Remember all that complaining I've been doing about, oh, long <laughs> Neil Young albums? Ah, oh, this song, why is it so Forget long? It. Well, here I'm going to be a complete hypocrite and tell you that Psychedelic Pill is an album that you absolutely must own. This one is a piker of a record. It opens... And I am not kidding you. It opens here with a song that is not only longer than every single famous prog rock epic ever. And I'm talking about like Supper's Ready by Genesis, Close to the Edge by Yes or Echoes by Pink Floyd, Thick as a Brick, Both Parts by Jethro Tull. Now, nah, Drifting Back is 28 minutes long, which makes it four minutes longer than the entirety of Everybody's Rockin' from 1983. 28 minute long song, track one. Boy, you'd think that's a recipe for disaster, but my God, Crazy Horse is back in its ragged glory jamming form. This record is just a shocker in terms of how fun it is. It's a self-indulgent, messy, silly, goofy, lengthy affair. It's 85 minutes long. It's two CDs. I love almost every second of it. I have no idea how I'm going to get a clip of a 28-minute long song into this show. Blocking out my anger 
probably just pick one. It won't be that different from the from the rest of the song. Exactly, exactly. Well, <laughs> but which, that's but which of which of those verses is the best best right. guitar solo? That's how you. That's the problem. And I that's like telling the, too. There, there's two 16 minute songs and one 27 minute song, and they're the best things on the album by far. Yeah, yeah. I mean, Ramada the, Inn is amazing. I love Ramada Inn. It's the, it. They hit that crazy horse groove and a wall of distortion, and it could go on forever. But the song itself has this really kind of sad wistfulness. It, it follows this older couple who are, I guess, are on a road trip, and it's kind of they're, they're writing their last chapters of life. Maybe they're not really in love anymore. Who knows? Uh, but he paints this amazing picture of like people in the later stages of life, and 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 are they happy? And when they look back on everything, did they do it right? Uh, would they have done it differently? He really, really rings the emotional content out with the guitar breaks. Uh, I love Ramada Inn. Maybe talk to his old friends who gave it up. He just pours himself another tall one. Closes his eyes and says that's enough. And I, I, truthfully, I love drifting back too. Psychedelic Pill is, again, it, it's it's lengthy. I, I, both you guys have talked about that, and it sounds to me like a band, Neil Young and Crazy Horse, like a band that is doing exactly what they want, and also, in a way, weeding out those people who can't keep up. Um, you know, if you're here, you're a fan, you're a super fan, perhaps, and, and they are sort of going through their music and giving you uh, boiling it down to the essence and then taking that essence and stretching it out uh all these songs here have this this heavy churning forward motion to them and yes 27 minutes track one 17 minutes track two you guys both mentioned ramada in which yeah is really really good uh the short songs are good too i like uh, i like i was born in ontario Actually, that's um, it's, it's a, it's a fun little song. It's uh, what about one eighth the length of Drifting Back, something along those lines. Um, so there's a lot to like on Psychedelic Pill. It's it's a Crazy Horse uh, album, and so you you know what to expect. And this is one in which they deliver. And uh, it's what eighty some minutes. It's a lengthy one, but they they get it done. And and it's it's I I, I think it might be hard to. Uh, enter again you have those front loaded really long tracks stripped and back starts off 27 minutes but it's one that especially from this later period when we've complained so much about quality control and editing and figuring out what works best and which song should be on the album um that they do a good job on that um from from that angle so we have 10 years left in neil young's career and seven albums to discuss 
uh, and 10 minutes in which to do that. <laughs> uh, but I think the interesting thing about this is that I don't feel like you feel very compelled to discuss the remainder of these albums in any great detail because I have to say, Psychedelic Pill for me is the last hurrah for Neil uh, thus far. I always like to feel that he's, he's Neil Young. He's probably got another one of these random bombs inside of him, and I'm looking forward to it when when the next you know Psychedelic Pill comes out. But like, does anybody have any deep thoughts about the weird album of like you know cover songs he'd recorded in a a, a phone booth with uh jack white jack white's direct to acetate recording booth or story tone where he like an old 78 a... cylinder thing yeah right like that. and then he does story tone which is sort of a uh an orchestral gimmick where he has a whole giant string section with him um the the one pick uh, out of what's left I think it, there are some things worth listening to on the Monsanto years. It's, you got to get past the name first. And yes, he's very yes, angry about big agribusiness. Yes, all of a that's, that's referring to the big ag company and pesticides and all that. Uh, and the lyrical content is is no better. If the if the title makes you groan, the lyrics will make you groan even more. Okay, well, well, Jeff, what was that lyric that you quoted to us in our show notes when we were oh. here? That was from uh, Colorado, the last, oh, okay. the last one um, that he did with Crazy Horse. It was, and it, but it could have been on the Monsanto years. It was, he, he starts out saying, I saw old white guys trying to kill Mother Nature. <laughs> and then about nine minutes later, he brings it back around with, I saw Mother Nature pushing Earth in a baby carriage. Neil's been known to have some weird lyrics, but that one's just a, that's a clunker, isn't it? Couldn't, couldn't make it up. Um, so about the Monsanto years. The Monsanto years, he's back for the first time there with Promise of the Real, which if you don't know is Lucas Nelson's band, Lucas Nelson being uh, Willie's son. If you haven't listened to them as a, as, as a standalone band, you should. They're fantastic. He's a great singer and a great songwriter. And it's that kind of young energy that, that Pearl Jam brought or was supposed to bring to Mirrorball. Um, they're a great backing band for him. Uh, and a lot of the music really does rock hard, uh, even though there's a couple clunkers on there and you kind of have to ignore the lyrics and just concentrate on the groove. But I, I think that's worth a listen personally. Wonder Cole got in money trouble Had to break the law like the Monsanto years a fair bout uh, you know a rock star bucks a coffee shop is a good song yep. I like uh, I like the title track too the band cooks you know that's what you got to say about it is that this this sort of like it's kind of got a country fried tinge to it you know that's what you're gonna get when you're playing with Willie Nelson's kid um, it's a great group 
Um, but yeah, again, it's yeah. just it always goes back to the quality control and the, the lack of editing. The, you know, the album is actually not as long as some of his other ones. I think it's only 50 minutes long, but it's, it's not that interesting either simply because there isn't a lot of like, you know, there's, there's no Briggs there to like, you know, keep him in line. And then I think of, uh, you know, like that weird live album that he released, which I guess we're not going to bother discussing, Earth, uh, which is like the weird one where he only covers like environmental songs. Uh, <laughs> well, he, he does it with Promise of the Real, but then he overdubs barnyard animal sounds over yes! the live recording. So That's like, yeah, in, in between the songs, in, in addition to the, like, instead of the crowd noise, you hear like pigs oinking and cheap. <laughs> bleeding and you know you, again you you can't make it up there's a horse whinnying there's like a cow mooing it's it's impossible. Yes. I, we got actually i have to drop a clip it just so people understand like why are you putting barnyard sounds in your live album But you know what? Neil can do whatever the hell he wants at this point. My, man. my 10-year-old just walked into the room and he said, sheep's oinking and pigs bleeding? What are you talking about? <laughs> well, you know what? Well, Maybe a bit mixed up. But enough, Neil Young, that's what I'm talking about. That's Neil Young. And of course, then he comes out with another quickie acoustic album called Peace Trails, another one of his angry political albums. And again, I got no problem with the politics, but I got a problem with the fact that he just recorded that thing in four days. And that was all the time it took for him to dash the thing out. And it's just, it's a, you know, it's a boring album. I hate saying that about Neil Young because he, what he usually doesn't do, except on Greendale, <laughs> is bore my pants off. And that album bored me. I don't know what you thought of it. Yeah, there's, there's just nothing to recommend it. Yeah, I know. And so, like, I feel the same way about these last few. So, like, what was there? There's The Visitor, which is, like... Boring. Yeah, but he's got like the the Donald Trump response song, which is kind of I guess I always I always like it when he's when if he's going to be boring, at least he's going to be head on the nose, you know, hit hit, hit the, the the nail on the head, you know, it was already great, you know, as opposed to make America great again, you know, well, well America's already great, yeah, uh, and that was basically the only thought that he had. He wanted to put an entire album around that. And um, Colorado is basically. Crazy Horse, but with Nils Lofgren back in the fold, which should work a lot better than it does. But That's tonight's the night, practically. And it, it is. It doesn't but work. The, but the songs just aren't there. Yeah, I know. I wanted to like it so much because Nils Lofgren is back, and I know Ben Keith has passed away, unfortunately, so he can't yep. rejoin the band. But, yeah, that's the same lineup that did it. Not even They don't even have Frank San Pedro there. So it's just like the four of them were all playing on tonight's the night. Should be great. It just goes to show you songwriting matters. <laughs> I don't think there's a thing on this. You know, there's like the obligatory 13 minute long song on it. It just doesn't work out. She showed me love. I, you know, the Milky Way, I think is kind of an okay song. I, but the, yeah, it's just, it's a disappointing thing. And I, and I hate having to end this on like a down note because I, first of all, think Neil Young still has it in him. I think somebody needs to take him aside and say, you know what? 
you know, why don't you just release some archival stuff for now and then gather your strength and then come out with something you've really thought about long and hard. All right, why don't you wait until the 2024 election, you know, get really angry and then put out a great album that really, you know, because when <laughs> Donald Trump is running again or something like that, maybe he can do it. But yeah, for these last few years, it's just sort of been kind of like a, on, a, on a, a rote release schedule of stuff that it just doesn't have the same thought and power that he put into it. Basically, all throughout, not only you know the 60s and 70s, but also I would argue even in the 80s, certainly in the 90s, uh, something something strange has happened to his production style since then. I still think he's got another great one in him. And there we are. There's the the. Uh... Not the, the the marathon, the sprint, the sprint to the finish line of Neil Young's uh, long and lengthy career here on Political Beats. Uh, we come to the portion of the episode in which we all tell you two albums that you should own from this era and five songs you need to hear. So many to choose from from this era of Neil Young. Our guest is first Jeff DeFore, editor-in-chief at National Journal. Jeff, your two albums and your five songs, please. This is really hard. Like Jeff always does, I went back and forth a lot on this. I am going to go with number one, uh, A Treasure, the International Harvester's live record, uh, touring off of old ways. I think this is the best uh, country tinge stuff he's ever done. The band just cooks from the, from the word go. You'll hear better versions of a lot of the songs. Um, it's a side of Neil Young that even if you like Harvest, you haven't heard a side of Neil Young like this. And I think I, I really was going to pick way down on the rust bucket because I love it, but I think I'm going to go with Les Noise. Um, I think that's one of the, one of the albums that everybody really, really needs to hear if they haven't already. It's so unique. Uh, it's singer songwriter stuff, but drenched in a wall of sound instead of an acoustic guitar and the songs really, really hold up. There's arguably maybe the best set of, of, of eight songs that he's put out uh, in this whole 30 or 40 year period. Five songs. Um, I'm going to go with Transformer Man, but I'm going to go with the unplugged version as I, uh, as I teased earlier. I never, never, never fail to get chills when they go from the... Um, from the end of the chorus back into the verse when it goes up to the five chord with the backing vocals in the background and then comes back down into transformer man it gets me every time uh crime in the city the live version from weld um, i think is one of his most interesting protest songs and it's just a, a, an absolute banger on top of it ramada in which we just talked about um, one of the great later era crazy horse jams uh, some great guitar work, a lot of emotional resonance. Um, Too Far Gone from Freedom, one of my favorite country rock songs that he did. I'm glad it got another another hearing here. And, a, uh, and it's by far the most concise thing that I'm going to talk about. Um, and then finally, I'm going to do Walk With Me from Les Noyes. Um, probably my favorite track on there and a good, uh, a good example of how unique this album is, how the... Um, the guitar keeps panning from right to left and right to left and back again. Um, so I could go on and on, but I'll, uh, but I'll stop with five. All right. My two albums from this era, uh, I will stick with the, uh, with the studio releases for, for my two. Uh, one is freedom. 
from uh, 1989, ending the uh, decade of the 80s on a extremely high note. As I said, I think it's really one of the uh, one of the final times that he's figuring out new ways and um, and pulling it off. Um, I love some of the more atmospheric sort of songs on on freedom. And again, that first side to me is pretty much perfection. So Freedom is one, and my, my second album from this era, yeah, it, it's going to be Silver and Gold. I, I just like it a lot, and uh, especially that that side of Neil. Uh, he tried to explore it multiple times during this show, during this era, and I don't think he did it any better than on Silver and Gold. Again, maybe not a, a slam dunk standout a legendary track, but they all, all the songs on Silver and Gold are really good. Uh, Song-wise, uh, from from Trans, uh, Computer Age. Man, that is a great song from uh, an unfairly maligned album, in my opinion. Uh, Don't Cry from Freedom is on my list of five. Uh, we talked a bit about Mansion on the Hill from Ragged Glory. I think that's the high point on, on that album. Change Your Mind, really long, but really worth it. And uh, as I mentioned earlier in the show, I do want to rescue another long song, Big Time, from uh, from that album and make sure that that one is pulled out for people to hear. I think that's by far the highlight of the album and uh, really is one of the highlights of this era of music. So those are my five. Jeff, over to you. Well, it's pretty clear that the best two albums of this part of Neil Young's career are Everybody's Rockin' and Life. So those are the ones that I'm... No, I'm kidding. I'm actually going to go with two live releases. And Jeff actually mentioned them both. He was debating whether putting both of them. I'm going to go with A Treasure, which is the live 1984-85 set. And I'm going to go with Way Down in the Rust Bucket, which is the live 1990 set, which also is good because it not only has its fantastic live performance, but it also catches all the ragged glory stuff there. You're going to hear all that stuff those are the best performances you could ever hope to hear of those songs anyway so that's a great way to get it for my five songs uh the first one is going to be transformer man from trans this is i already told you it was going to be so it should be no surprise i already had it featured on, on an earlier episode of our show i love it with every shred of my heart the second one i would pick is going to be ordinary people but it's the live from the Blue Note Cafe, 1988 version of that song. Not the one that ended up coming out on Chrome Dreams 2. Uh, yeah, it's long, it's preachy, it's weird, it's Neil. It's Neil in every single bone of its body. And it, again, also seems like a pretty decent Bruce Springsteen cop, but I actually prefer it to many Springsteen songs from you know 1988 or afterwards. Uh, don't Cry, I agree with Scott. Probably my pick on freedom. Yeah, I wanted to go at rocking in the free world, but you don't need me to tell you to listen to rocking in the free world. You hear it at every single stadium. Like, you know, every time, I guess nobody goes to stadiums these days anymore because of COVID, but like you've heard it a billion times. I don't need to recommend it to you. Don't cry is really the secret gem on freedom. Uh, I'm going to pick a song. I don't need to get anything from Ragged Glory because, as I said, you've got all of that on way down in the rust bucket. So I'm going to go to Sleeps with Angels. And again, echo Scott and say Change Your Mind is just a beautiful song. I think that that's one of his best long jams. And it has that great you know, move to the really upbeat chorus after the very dark and minor uh, verses. And then the one I'll end with actually is another one of Mr. DeFore's, and that's Ramada N from Psychedelic Pill from one of his much later career albums. Uh, 
16 minutes, it's practically a blink and you missed it kind of a song. So it may travel under the radar for most people. But I really love it. And I really think all the really long jams on that album are worthwhile. But, you know, as Scott himself pointed out, it's a bit of an acid test. Are you a real (laughs) Crazy Horse fan? Let's see how much of a Crazy Horse fan you are. As it turns out, I'm a really big Crazy Horse fan. I can listen to them play for 30 minutes, 17 minutes, 16 minutes, whatever you want to have. And I'm I'm pretty much game for it. And that's a classic example of them jamming out at great level. episodes we put a cap on the political beats look at neil young's career we thank our guests for being with us for all this time it was almost uh, a drifting back length uh podcast so to speak uh way longer than way that, longer yes. <laughs> nationaljournal.com is the editor-in-chief there at dc defore on twitter jeff defore thanks so much for joining us we're we're going to release the uh the extended version yeah. <laughs> only on, only on pono <laughs> with all the outtakes it's going to be crystal clear quality though i mean that's that's yeah, the important thing hd quality stuff it's going to be beautiful and uh jeff blair you can find him on twitter at esoteric cd we uh, scratch another of the uh, the big ones off the list yeah and now we have an open schedule for the foreseeable future we got to figure out what we're going to do yes uh, you can find me on twitter at scott bertram and check out our patreon too patreon.com slash political beats Help us stay ad-free, support our efforts of the program, entry-level, mid-level, upper-level as well, with exclusive content once a month for the upper-level remastered episodes, uh, playlists with all these songs we pick at the end of our episodes. Patreon.com slash Political Beats. Now the part of the episode where we thank our Patreon supporters for their generous support for Political Beats. This time we say thank you to Josh Pierce, Joseph Llewellyn, Matt McGinnis, Steve Singizer, former guest on the program, another former guest too, Dan McLachlan, Dan M., Alex Poderak, Matthew Coates, Nathan Anderson, Chet Archbold, and Michael Buchanan. Thanks to all of you and more who support us via Patreon and keep this show ad-free and support us here in our efforts. Patreon.com slash Political Beats. Subscribe to our feed for new episodes, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, TuneIn, or go right to nationalreview.com. Listen, enjoy, share, and of course, leave reviews to help others find the program. We're on Facebook. You can also find us on Twitter and join the conversation at political underscore beats. This has been a presentation of National Review. This is Political Beats. Political Beats.